It's the time of year for celebrations, but the holidays are also a season when alcohol can be a problem. So as you prepare to head out to parties and family gatherings where people will be drinking, NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann has a few tips for staying safe and healthy. I want to promise right up front, this isn't a finger-wagging, scoldy sort of conversation. Experts say most of us will do just fine with our drinking through Christmas and New Year's. But it is important to keep in mind, alcohol can be risky for some people. Here's Kim Kearns. I did not go out and not drink. I, I drank all the time with friends. Kearns is 39, a stay-at-home mom who lives in Massachusetts. For years, she says the holidays felt like a slippery slope. This is the time of year. This is when everybody's drinking. You know, oh, the, we're decorating the Christmas tree even though it's 11 a.m. I think this deserves mimosas. Last year, she says things got out of control. She scared herself drinking too much. All the experts I talked to agree the holidays are a time when alcohol can trip people up. Part of it, like Kern says, is the fact that it's just everywhere. Alcohol is tangled up in a lot of the rituals we love. But Dr. Anna Lemke, a researcher at Stanford University, says the holidays also leave some of us more vulnerable. The holidays are often a time of great expectations, which can be disappointed when things don't go according to how we envisioned that they could go or should go. And although we can love our families and friends, getting together can be stressful. So that's the first thing to be aware of. Just the simple fact, in the next few weeks, some of us may be more prone to risky or problem drinking as a way to cope with stress. The experts I talked to offered some red flags to watch out for and also some simple strategies to stay healthy. The first suggestion from Anna Lemke is to have a good idea how much alcohol is safe. Folks who are worried about their use but want to continue to drink should keep careful track. According to Lemke, three alcoholic drinks in a day and seven drinks in an entire week, that's considered safe for women. For most men, it's a little more. Four drinks in a day and 14 drinks spread over an entire week. Stray over those numbers and that's maybe a red flag. The next thing experts say we should all be ready for is pressure from friends and family to keep drinking past healthy limits. Dr. Tyler Osterley is at the Mayo Clinic. He says resisting pressure to drink can mean more conflict, more stress. One good strategy, he says, is to have a script in mind. So when, you know, your favorite aunt uh, offers you a glass of wine and, and you decided uh, not to drink wine that evening, have something prepared. The statement can be as simple as, no, thank you, I'm not drinking or I've had enough. Another important strategy is to consider not going to that party at all. David Dorshu runs an addiction treatment program in New Jersey. Keeping yourself in a safe place is the priority and perhaps next year you can go to Aunt Mary's. There is another side to this whole holiday drinking thing, and that's how the host behaves. Dershu says it's important that guests feel welcome and included, even if they're only drinking a little or abstaining altogether. You have, you know, other options for folks that are non-alcoholic, number one. But number two, you're creating an atmosphere where people feel comfortable to decline and to say, you know, no, thank you. Kim Kearns in Massachusetts says after last year's holidays, she chose to do this season alcohol-free. A huge amount of fear in facing the social scene to all my friends. Kern says she talked with her husband and let a few key friends know about her choice. 
She also looked for ways to lower holiday stress that don't involve a glass of wine or a cocktail. I felt like I went into the holidays this year with a plan. I felt like I had this toolbox. Kern says her best tips are to go for a walk or exercise or just take a break from friends and family. Brian Mann, NPR News. There's a very clear moment as Black people are being disenfranchised in the late 19th century that they turn to commercial activity as a way of trying to secure their rights. And so what becomes a, a deep irony of, of Southern political history is that as African Americans are being encouraged to participate in the economy and acquire property, they're also being targeted by white terrorism and being that, that forcibly divested of that property. Um, and what's very key in terms of what happens in Miami and elsewhere is that people begin to understand and talk in you know very informal and in folk terms about the looming danger of black people losing their land. It's a concern in the 19-teens. It's a concern in the 1940s as people are expanding um, the state's ability to take land, land legally through eminent domain. Um, the attack on uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa in 1921 was a national story, and part of that story included the burning of financial records owned by African Americans who owned property. This story touches on a glaring inequality in American life. In recent decades, the incomes of black and white families have drawn closer, but the accumulated wealth of those families has not. There is a wealth gap. Some families now ask what to do with an asset they do have, an old family home in a rising market. NPR's Laurel Wansley reports. Fred Brown is 26 and grew up in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of Washington, D.C. My grandmother owned a house and me and my brothers and sisters, my mother and father, lived in the house. His grandmother had owned the seven-bedroom home since 1960 when she bought it for less than $7,000. When she died a few years ago, Brown says his father wanted his aunts to help pay the taxes on it. I guess they didn't want to pay it, so they had a big dispute, and, you know, they wound up selling it. His parents are now renters, and Brown stays at a friend's home while he applies for jobs. He sees the sale of his grandmother's house as a big mistake. The values of houses is going up. They could have just invested in the future instead of just worrying about the present. It's a situation that confronts many black families. What to do with grandma's house? For most American families, home equity is their single largest asset. As prices in some areas reach eye-popping levels, the decision about whether to hold on to or sell a family home can have long-lasting consequences for generational wealth. And what happens with these homes is crucial to closing the racial wealth gap. In 2019, the typical white family had $184,000 in assets, while the typical black family had just $23,000. I think everybody should own and keep at least one home in their family and try to buy as much property or land as they can and sit on it. That's Reagan Adams. For the 42-year-old city worker, the two properties her father left behind in Knoxville, Tennessee, have provided a roof over her head and a way to pay off debts. She and her husband divorced when he was released from prison, and then he soon died, leaving her with funeral bills and little in Social Security to support their daughter. Adams fixed up one of the properties and rented it out for several years before selling it. She now lives in her father's former home in northeast Knoxville, an area she hadn't been keen to return to that's changing fast. Maybe about four years ago, I started hearing a lot of buzz about people wanting to move on this street, and I'm thinking, why? Like... This just doesn't make any sense. Into the lower-income neighborhood came a lot of new people, buying houses and fixing them up. Now it's very quiet. 
people are walking the neighborhoods like there's no crime, like it's totally different from when I was here before. She says her street used to be about half black and half white. Has it gotten whiter? Absolutely. My whole neighborhood is white. I probably am the only black person on the street. There's a racial gap in homeowning, too. In 2019, the rate of white homeownership was nearly 74 percent, while the black homeownership rate was 30 points lower. Experts say there are a few strategies to ensure the value of a family home doesn't disappear. Number one is not selling it to an investor who comes calling unsolicited, offering cash. Realtors say properties typically sell for more when they're sold on the open market. And for homeowners who want to ensure that there's a plan for the property, a will is crucial and a trust is even better. Denea Wright, a law professor at the University of Florida, studied what happened to properties when the owners did or did not have wills. And what I found was just pretty stunning difference. The people who died without wills, those homes sold for significantly below fair market value. They were much more likely to be lost at foreclosure and tax sale, four times more likely, for instance. Wills and trusts help to avoid the heir's property problem, where a property becomes fractionated between several heirs, and any one of them can force a sale. The issue has caused many Black families to lose their land. But in the Petworth neighborhood of D.C., 68-year-old Cynthia Harris is one of those reaping the rewards of inheriting a family property. She lives in the home her parents bought more than 50 years ago. I think my parents paid $26,000 for this property in 1970. About 15 years ago, she reached out to a realtor about selling the house. And the realtor told me that he wouldn't sell the house. It was corner house, not a property. The area would be improving and I should keep it. But at that time, the house was only worth about $220,000, $40,000. And do you know how much the house is probably worth now? $1.2 million. My goodness. Uh, how do you feel about that? I feel real good about it. <laughs> and actually, I ended up marrying the realtor. And they now live in the house together. Harris says the idea of building wealth in a particular place has always been in her mind. We're city people, and we didn't get 40 acres in a mule. We had no place to call home except this corner. And I always wanted my family to have some place where they can say, yeah, that's where I'm from. That's my home. And that's why I held on to it. Still, she's preparing for change. In all likelihood, we will offer it to family first at market value. But her husband's daughters likely can't afford to buy it. And her husband has property of his own. So Harris will probably sell the house and use a chunk of the proceeds to downsize to a condo. Back in Knoxville, real estate agent Kanika White says black homeowners selling their house know that in many cases it's going to be a white person buying it. That's one of their concerns. You know, they grew up here, their children grew up here, their grandchildren are here, and they are now seeing the demographics change. White grew up in New Orleans and Atlanta. And she says city leaders and others are often quick to trumpet neighborhood development without actually improving people's lives. The people who you no longer see in this area are still poor. You've really just moved poverty from one zip code to another. With such rapid change in Knoxville, she sees it as her mission to help homeowners harness wealth, whether they keep a property or fix it up and sell it. 
And she wants to help residents stay in the community if they want to. Or find a way to, if they do leave the community, they have not left still poor. They can leave with some wealth in their pockets. They have that money to go start a business or to send their kid to college or go back to college themselves. She hopes that Black people with the means to will not move to more upscale parts of the city, but instead buy in the now gentrifying neighborhoods they grew up in. But if you're going to leave, take your wealth with you. Don't leave it for other people to get. And if I can help as many people as possible achieve that, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. Closing the wealth gap in America depends on many Black families doing just that. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News, Washington. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, They're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Nearly three quarters of teenagers today say that they have talked to a parent about race in the past year. That's at least according to a Washington Post-Ipsos poll, which also found more than half have had a similar conversation with a close friend. So we wanted to know what have these conversations been like? The youth media organization, YR Media, teamed up with the Washington Post for the series Teens in America. Teenage YR Media reporters from five parts of the country recorded interviews with family members and peers, each exploring a different question from navigating being mixed race to how white privilege plays out in families. We're joined now by three of those reporters today, Zoe Jenkins in Charlottesville, Virginia, Miranda Zonka in Chicago, Illinois, and Ichtaka Lira in Hayward, California. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's, it's so great to be here. Hi, thank you. Well, Miranda, I want to turn to you because the story that you reported is called Am I Asian Enough? Can you just talk about why you decided to work on this piece, which was about how you perceived your Chinese background growing up? So I think um, it's an experience that a lot of mixed race people have. Am I enough, you know, is, is the experience that I've had as part of this ethnic group enough to make me one of those people that belongs? And I think a lot of the experience that I've had is being perceived as Asian by people who aren't Asian and then being perceived as white or Hispanic by people who are. Mm. And it just makes you constantly question, like, am I Asian enough? Am I Asian at all? Am I, you know, anything? You know, when I was listening to your piece, something that really struck me was all these conversations you have had with members of your family about the Chinese part of your identity. And I want to examine sort of this contrast that you saw between how your brother saw the Chinese part of his identity versus how your grandfather did. Can you talk about that? Yes. So my brother basically said that while he was growing up, especially in high school, he had this experience where he just was always wishing that he seemed less Asian, looked less Asian, you know, was just seen as white. And he went to like a Catholic all boys school. It was majority white. And it just created a lot of challenges for him because people would assume that he was a certain way 
because he was Asian. I don't even really know what that meant in most contexts, but Mm -hmm. I know that, and this was so heartbreaking for me, like he really wished that he wasn't. And on the flip side, for my grandpa, he has no perception of his own race. Uh, You know, that's not the dominant part of my identity and my culture. Um, I think my culture has been shaped far more by a number of the things that uh, I've grown up with here in the United States. I think that what perhaps is more important is a host of questions posed by uh, the great Western philosophers, you know, talking about what does it mean to be a good person? My grandpa's 100% Chinese and my brother is 25% Chinese. But they seem to have these completely different experiences where my brother's perceived racial identity was such an integral part of like his self-image and his self-confidence um, and his growth as a person. And for my grandpa, it was kind of just like it. Yeah, like a non-issue. Life. Right. Right. Well, Zoe, I want to go to you now because y- your story It's about racism in school and your efforts to redefine how race is taught. What do you think is important for teachers and and for administrators to know when they're trying to tackle topics like race in the classroom? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's important to note is just that we really have to rely on the student experience um, to start talking about race in schools. Our students know what's going on with race in this country much better than the people who are teaching it. So how can we involve students more in developing the kinds of curriculum and activities that allows them to feel like their histories are being reflected properly? And I think it's really important for us to have intentional conversations about race, uh, because as much as we want to act like race doesn't affect the way that we live in the United States, it does. And I think we have seen how the effects of just not talking about it, um, just in, I think, the awakening that we've had as a country over the last year and a half. Yeah. And you speak very passionately about what you perceive is your responsibility to fight against systemic injustice. Can you talk about how you see that commitment? I mean, it's it's the kind of whole like with great power comes great responsibility where if you if you see a problem and you feel like you have the tools to tackle it or if you know the right people who can help tackle it, then it's on you. Um right to help to address that. I want to talk more about this idea of how we perceive our own racial identities and how other people perceive our racial identities. Like Ichtaka, you speak about how people often assume that you're white instead of Latinx. What do you think that they're focusing on? I think they're focusing on simply my appearance. And it's definitely uncomfortable because I think growing up, My parents were always sure to make me feel really proud of where I came from and to always stand up for other people of color and to cherish them and and to cherish myself for my identity and my roots. And that was something that I I still have very much so today. And especially like like in in the wake of like what Zoe was saying, our racial awakening, I am so proud of where I come from. So it's just very strange and makes me feel like I can't speak up on these issues in the same way that I have before. Well, Ichtaka, when you told your father, who's Mexican, about being seen as white, can you talk about how he responded to that? Yeah. So my my dad, he was he was very righteous in like his answer of like, no, there's no way that you as my kid should be perceived as white because you come from me and my dad doesn't like to perceive himself as white. I still don't accept 
um, that a person like you is a white passing, and that's maybe because uh, I have a personal bias as well, you know, because you kind of look like me. I think it, it does, like, hurt him in a little bit of a way because he also, like, his, his parents were immigrants. He had to experience racism. And so um, he is very righteous in his identity as a person of color and that, like, he wants me to have to feel the same way and yeah. and not lose that part of the way that we see ourselves. Well, Zoe, I want to go to you now. Can you talk about how you want to see conversations about race change? Yeah, Um I think the biggest frustration I've run into is that people are very eager to not be racist right now, which, sure, is a great first step. But there are many aspects in which we actually do need to treat people differently because of their race, because they have different privileges and access to things. I think that's when we'll be able to talk more realistically about equitable solutions and not just kind of equal solutions um, that don't necessarily like target the kinds of inequalities that need to be targeted. That was Zoe Jenkins, Miranda Zonka, and Ichtanka Lira. They are reporters for YR Media. Their series, Teens in America, is a collaboration with The Washington Post. Thank you to all three of you so much for this incredible conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. We consciously determined that we are not going to play with sex so that the joke is on the offspring. See, sex may be highly enjoyable, but it's not to be demeaned and degraded so we end up producing throwaway children and creating the worst crime, second to white supremacy, on the planet, meaning the mistreatment of children and not taking care of the children that we produce. So they get thrown away to a foster care system and they get sexually abused. If they don't get sexually abused at home, they get sexually abused in the foster care and moving from one house to another. Like I talked to one child, told me she'd been in 15 different foster homes. There are currently more than 400,000 children in foster care in the U.S. And while the pandemic has made life even more difficult for these vulnerable kids, many say the foster care system itself has been putting them at risk for decades. Special correspondent Charlene Hunter-Galt sat down with one former foster child who's now on a mission to fix the system by helping families stay together in the first place. It's part of our Race Matters series and Charlene's ongoing reporting on racism in America. Ready for your popsicle? Meet 61-year-old Valencia Polk. Hold it right here. Her six grandchildren came to live with her after Child Protective Services removed the children from their parents due to neglect allegations. It was a lot to take on, but the grandmother never thought twice. Then, after a few months and without warning, all six of the children were taken from her and put in a foster home. She was never given a specific reason. They told me, we're going to take the children. I cried, of course, they're my kids. Um, why are you going to take the kids? We don't think you can handle it. When they took them, they were sitting in the floor doing their homework, and they came and got them, screaming and crying, please, please, help me, help me, help me. And then till I had to leave. I said I got to go back in the house because I just felt like I was going to fall on the ground. Polk says the children were physically and verbally abused in foster care 
adding they were dirty during supervised visits. The trauma led each of the children to start shutting down in different ways. Eight-year-old BJ stopped doing his schoolwork. He told me out of his own mouth, he said, I'm, I don't want to do better until I go home. That's what he told me, so that's what I'm dealing with. The three-year-old that's in there, the boy wouldn't say nothing. They thought he was deaf and dumb. They were teaching him sign language. I told him, I said, he's not deaf and dumb. You broke him. Then, just as suddenly as they were taken away, three of the children were given back to Polk, again, without explanation. All this is avoidable trauma caused by a broken system, according to Sixto Council. It's cases like this one that led the 29-year-old former foster child to start a nonprofit called Think of Us. It collects these kinds of stories, brings them to Washington, and advocates for change that would help families like the Polks stay together. On this night, Council visited the Polks with Valerie Jackson of Monarch Family Services, the child placing agency helping Polk obtain permanent guardianship. This is how we find out, is by talking to real human beings. Like, we have to hear from all sides. I met Sixto Council near the Polk home in Houston, Texas, to hear more about his ideas on what needs to change, ideas fueled equally by his own traumatic childhood. Just how typical is what we've just seen? This is a story that we see over and over and over. And all the time we see these small barriers as like a deposit for an apartment or the need for more food being the barrier that actually blocks families from staying together or these technicalities that a family might need to be licensed to take care of their children, their relatives. Yeah, but even in your own life, I mean, you're now 29 uh, and you had this experience like in a way like this family since you were 11 months old. What was that like? Unfortunately, my mother couldn't take care of us because of her drug addiction. And by the age of nine, I was adopted, and it was a pretty abusive and racist adoption. What do you mean? I was placed with a Puerto Rican white-looking woman who, you know, while the light-skinned children got to go to a private school, she told me because I was black, I would have to go to a public school. And I would experience different types of abuses based on who I was. And so by 13, found myself couch surfing and trying to prove to the agency what was going on. But it was this tall, black-looking kid against this white, short-looking um, Puerto Rican woman. And I wasn't believed for a very long time until I started to record the abuse. And you came up with solution by watching what is one of my favorite shows, Law & Order. Yeah, so it was one day I was watching Law & Order and that was the moment where I realized I had to find evidence. I had to build evidence. So after that, I was able to be put back into foster care. What was it like in those foster homes? It was a roller coaster. So fostering is a calling, and some people are called to do the work. And some people, you know, really see the mutual benefit of being able to survive leveraging that stipend that they get from the government. It was only after he aged out of the system at 23 that Council discovered he had family members less than 60 miles away who would have taken him in. But he says they were never contacted. We see this still happening today, but what is encouraging is that we're also seeing a lot of movement around making it better. 
There have been laws that have been passed in the last three years that people are really working hard to change this. How much of it is, do you think is about race? Is it, is that, does it happen to all children regardless of color or is there a disproportionate impact uh, if you're a person of color? So what we know right now is that 53% of all black families will experience a child abuse investigation. 10% of all black children will experience uh, foster care. That is twice the rate that of, of white children. And so what we see is an over-surveillance of child, uh, child welfare in communities that are poor. I think when you think of foster care, you think of child welfare, you think of folks who have probably been physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused, but 64% of the cases actually have to do with neglect issues that are coming from poverty, right? The lights, water are not running, not enough food. So we created a system that was supposed to be about protecting children from abusers, but what we really have is the majority of the children in foster care are experiencing high poverty issues. So how did you get involved in this program that you're working with now? So I started Think of Us with the premise that we should be fixing the system, re-architecting it um, in a way that we address the core problems that are around it. And so I truly envision that right now we can move from being a system that is mainly focused on placing children with um, strangers, right, foster parents that they don't know, that we can move that to a system that supports grandma, uncle, cousins, people that the children already know and that are already related to, and figure out how do we support them in taking them in. Right now, only 33% of children are actually placed with a relative. Where are the rest of them, in group homes? We see that they're in um, foster homes, in group homes, um, and the difference that we're also seeing here is that when they are placed with a relative, that states are not supporting those families the same way that they would support a foster parent. On average, a foster parent gets about $800 in reimbursement a month for a child. But for many states, they provide no type of support or very little support to an actual grandparent or aunt and uncle who's taking them in. I've seen you say that um, despite all of the division that we see politically these days, you've got some cooperation between the parties on this. One of the things that I'm so encouraged by on child welfare particularly is that it is a bipartisan issue. But I think we need to go even further, right? We have a lot of agreement around foster care, but sometimes we think differently about kinship care. The idea when grandma takes in her uh, grandchildren that she should just do that. And we need to shift our thinking to say, no, we should support grandma and being able to make sure that grandma has all the tools and, and resources that we would give a foster parent um, to make that, keep that family together. So what keeps you going? What makes you hopeful? You've used that word, so what is it? I'm very hopeful because at the basis of what's happening right now, the money's changing in child welfare, what can be financed, the rules are changing in child welfare. But what I really want people to know is that this is an opportunity for us to ensure that children and young people get families and that we grow up with families and that every child should be able to feel someone who loves them pass a contractual agreement. And this is the opportunity where we get to do that. And you're hopeful that we can do this? I'm confident that we can do this. Well, Sixto cancel. You make me hopeful just listening to you. Thank you. Thank you. I believe the children are our future.
overwhelming number of characters in children's media have historically tended to be white. But the U.S. population has changed. Nearly half of people under the age of 18 are people of color. Yet studies show that the characters in children's books and television do not reflect that change at all. We reported on those studies, and today we bring you recommendations. NPR's Elizabeth Blair asked children's media experts to tell us about recent kids' entertainment that gets high marks for both storytelling and inclusion. Princess Dajrai Johnson is a member of the Nitsai Guchin Indigenous Peoples in Alaska. She's also a writer and producer on the PBS show Molly from Denali. One of her recommendations is the new Netflix series City of Ghosts. I just love how it relates so deeply to place. A group of kids in Los Angeles learns about the city's history by talking to the ghosts of people who lived in different neighborhoods. It was a few weeks ago. I was playing by the trees and I heard a voice. I looked around, but there was nobody there. In one episode, a member of the Ghost Club hears a voice whenever he visits a park near the river. For research, the kids talk to members of the indigenous Tongva. One of them translates what the voice is saying. Every pebble a planet. Every stone a grave. It's so amazing to see this sort of like depth and connection to place that really honors the first peoples of that place. Sometimes a story is a window and sometimes it's a mirror, says Mariana Diaz-Vionchek, a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant for children's media. The shows that are and characters that, that resonate the most are actually both. You see yourself reflected in them, but you also get to learn about other things. Diaz Vionchek spent several years as head of education and research for Dora the Explorer. Today, she's a consultant on the new show, Alma's Way. Here she comes, beaming with pride and something to say. Hear those drums, sing Alma's Way. Created by Sonia Manzano of Sesame Street fame, Alma is a Puerto Rican girl from the Bronx. Her friends are of different races, ethnicities, and abilities. But they also face kid-sized challenges you might find anywhere. I hate to say it, but our clubhouse is kind of plain. Yeah, too cardboardy. <gasps> totally. The first mission of the Cardboard Club should be to decorate our clubhouse. Alma's Way was recommended by Rutgers professor Amy Jordan, who co-edits the Journal of Children and Media. The colors pop, the characters are vivid. It's just a really well done program. It's taking on what are often very common childhood issues about how to be a good friend, or if you want to be good at something, you need to practice that something. Alma also makes it cool to be inclusive. Can I come in? Yeah, everyone can play with us. Diaz Vionchek says Alma's open and welcoming attitude was intentional. It matters more how we represent a community that supports all people than how we represent each individual. So you have the responsibility as a, as a producer to create a world that serves everyone. 
But stories about individuals, even ones who don't look like you, can also help kids feel less alone. Take the picture book Nana Akua Goes to School by Tricia Elam Walker, winner of this year's Ezra Jack Keats Writers Award. Zura is a little girl who wants to bring her West African grandmother to school for Grandparents' Day, but she's afraid the traditional tribal markings on her face will frighten her classmates. It happened once before. On their way home, a little boy pointed at Nana, and Zura heard him say to his mother, that lady looks scary. I think all kids will resonate with Zura's fears, fears of being different. Deborah Pope is the executive director of the Ezra Jack Keats Foundation. In the story, Nana Akua does go to Zora's school for Grandparents' Day. And I brought some special makeup so that each of you can have beautiful African symbols on your face, too. Her grandmother just aces the situation by showing how she can make differences familiar and therefore bridges the cultural gap. Embracing your culture, your personality, and your dreams is at the heart of our next recommendation for diverse children's media, the picture book, The Me I Choose to Be, written by Natasha Tarpley. Some may think they know who I am, but here's what you must understand. My creativity and curiosity flow without end, and if I meet an obstacle, I just begin again. Each page of this book is a wildly imaginative photograph of a different child of color. A majestic girl in a silver dress looks to the sky, holding a fiery planet in her hand. A ballerina dances across a luminous violet night sky. The images are just amazing. The Me I Choose to Be is recommended by Kevin Clark, a former professor at George Mason University's College of Education and Human Development. He says the photography by Regis and Karen Bethencourt will inspire kids. They're uplifting, they're bright, they're vibrant, they're unlike anything I've ever seen in a children's picture book. Kevin Clark has been working in the children's media space for more than 20 years. He's watched the evolution of efforts to make kids' content more diverse, and he's seen some strides. But he says there needs to be more people of color at every level of the process, from creation to finance and marketing. People are having to justify or to present books in a way that so that other people can understand it and be connected to it, and then they'll free up the resources to be able to get it out to a wider audience. So I think having more people in these rooms and in positions of power to make these decisions can also be helpful. With nearly half of all people under 18, people of color, content creators might want to see diversity as more than an afterthought. For more recommendations of diverse children's media, check out the NPR website at npr.org. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Muskogee Public Schools says an 11-year-old student helped to save two people in one day. This is such a great story. They say Davion Johnson did the Heimlich maneuver on another student who was choking last week. And that same day after school, he saw a house fire and he ran over to help a woman who was using a walker get out of the home. 
And I thought, oh, she's not moving fast enough. So I ran across the street and was like, uh, and helped her to her truck. Good for what him. A what a kid. little hero. The superintendent recognized Davion at tonight's school board meeting. The Muskogee County Sheriff's Office named him as an honorary deputy. And of course, he says he wants to be an EMT when he grows up. What a kind heart. Right? Great kid. Wow. See the little lady with the walker? EMT. I think he'd be a great MT. No doubt about it. Good for him. My skin, my logo. logo. Yeah. My skin, my logo. Hey, everybody. Maddie Safai here with shortwave reporter Emily Kwong. Hi, Emily. Hey, Maddie. So today I want to talk about the field of dermatology. Ooh, that's the one treating hair, skin, nails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing field. So skin is the largest organ of the body. We shed more right. than a pound of dry skin throughout the year. <laughs> and it's a really visual field. Okay, so dermatologists like Dr. Jeanette Okoye rely on pictures to get a sense of what a disease looks like so they can recognize it in the moment. We're really scanning the patient from the minute we walk in the room. And many of our diagnoses, we actually know them from the door because rote memorization of what things look like is such a big part of our training. Jeanette is chair of the Department of Dermatology at Howard University College of Medicine. And like a lot of dermatologists, she was paying close attention last spring when COVID-19 was giving some patients skin rashes. Do you remember that? Mm, yeah, I do. There were reports of COVID toes, like people's toes swelling up. It, mm -hmm. it usually showed up with more mild cases. Yeah, it was considered kind of a COVID red flag. But Jeanette was noticing the pictures in clinical papers about COVID toes and other skin manifestations were overwhelmingly of light skin. Historically, black skin, brown skin is not represented in our literature appropriately. So it wasn't a surprise. Mm -hmm. It's just that on the heels of all the things that were going on in the country last summer, we thought that it was worth calling it out in a way that we hadn't called out our colleagues in the past. Mm. And out on the West Coast, dermatologist Dr. Jenna Lester was really noticing this, too. Here we have this disease that at that point we knew was disproportionately impacting communities of color. And we didn't know at that point what these rashes could help us understand. Jenna is an assistant professor in the Department of Dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. That frustration turned from what I would consider like potential energy to kinetic energy when I was speaking to one of my mentors, Eleni Linos, and we decided to do this um, systematic um, review of the literature looking at... Turning your kinetic energy into data gathering? Mm -hmm. I like this, Emily. Well, you're going to like what happened next because Jenna, her mentor Eleni, and Jeanette at Howard, alongside two medical students at the time, looked at all of the papers that had been published up to that point mm -hmm. having to do with COVID-19-related skin lesions, which is just a fancy word to mean that a part of the skin looks different from the rest. Mm. And they evaluated 130 pictures, categorizing them using the Fitzpatrick skin type system. And it's a scale from one to six, at where one is very light and six is very dark skin. And the results confirm their suspicion. The overwhelming majority of photos, 92%, were for skin types 1 through 3, so on the lighter end of the spectrum. Wow. There were a handful of type 4 photos, 
and zero clinical images representing types 5 and 6, which are on the darker end of the spectrum. Mm, I wish I was surprised about that, but I'm not, you know. Yeah, Jenner and her co-authors weren't surprised, and they published these findings in the British Journal of Dermatology in May 2020. I mean, understanding this, like understanding how COVID toes showed up in black and brown people could have been really helpful diagnosing patients early on, right? Yes, exactly. And COVID toes is just the latest example of what dermatologists have known about their field for a long time, which is that skin of color has not been represented in a field that purports to care for the skin of all. So today on the show, we take a close look at dermatology, how the science of skincare has evolved to better serve patients of color, but it still has a long way to go. All right, Emily. So today we're talking about dermatology and skin of color. Right. And skin of color, by the way, Jeanette tells me, is a term that not everyone uses. People say skin of color. People say ethnic skin. Some people say multicultural skin or pigmented skin. Um, I don't think it really matters. I think it's all a euphemism for non-white skin. Mm. And dermatology, historically, like all medicine, has not provided equitable care for patients of color. It's a field that has quite literally centered white skin to the detriment mm -hmm. of black and brown patients. Because there are many skin conditions that present differently on dark skin. And this racial disparity, it shows up. It shows up in medical journals. Like with the COVID toes? Exactly, yeah. And Jenna Lester at UCSF says it shows up in medical textbooks which overall lack images of skin of color. And when patients go to see a dermatologist, it shows up there too. Like, just listen to this commercial for psoriasis. Those itchy, flaky red patches you see on the outside could be a sign of inflammation on the inside. Talk and in textbooks, the they're described as salmon pink patches with silvery scale. That's the quote-unquote classic description of psoriasis. And I hate the word classic because generally classic describes a rash as it appears in light skin. But on dark skin, Jenna says, psoriasis can present very differently. Inflammation can look more purple in dark skin. It can look more magenta colored. It can even just be dark brown, um, several shades darker than the background skin tone. So any condition that presents or manifests with inflammation um, can look significantly more subtle in dark skin and also just maybe a completely different color than you're expecting. So, Emily, how has this ultimately affected patients? Well, we have solid evidence of serious health disparities in dermatology. Mm. Lyme disease, all kinds of rashes and cancers can go misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed in patients with skin of color. Yeah, and that plus all the systemic problems that create health disparity in the first place mm -hmm. can lead to poorer outcomes, too. Yeah. For example, Jeanette says a certain type of lymphoma called mycosis fungoides is easily misdiagnosed as eczema or some other benign skin condition if you don't know what to look for. Many of the photographs in our textbooks and our journal articles and lectures just didn't even include skin of color. So our eyes were not trained to find it in Black patients. Um, so, you know, that's one example of a disease that actually kills people when we don't find it in time. I mean, this is a really serious problem. And I know with melanoma, for instance, mm -hmm. the five-year survival rate is lower with Black patients. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It's around 66 percent for Black patients compared with about a 90 percent five-year survival rate 
for white patients. And that's in part because it's not being caught early enough, right? Exactly. So there's disparity around skin conditions being diagnosed correctly, but also disparity in being treated correctly with the right injections or creams. That's actually one of the reasons Jeanette got into dermatology in the first place. During medical school, I saw a dermatologist for a scalp condition, and he prescribed a medicated shampoo, and he told me to use it every day. And I thought, well, he must not know that Black women don't wash their hair every day. And that really stuck with me. And when Jeanette entered residency, which was 15 years ago, she went beyond her textbooks to source images of skin of color, taking whatever condition she was learning about in school and researching how it presents on dark skin. As I was trying to build my expertise in skin of color, I actually found this long, comprehensive journal article about skin of color that was written by Susan Taylor. And it sort of became my Bible during residency. I read it so many times. Okay, so Susan Taylor is a name I heard a lot in these interviews. Okay. She's a professor of dermatology at University of Pennsylvania and a trailblazer in her field, Maddie. I had to call her up for this story because we might not be talking about skin of color this way if it weren't for Dr. Susan Taylor's contributions. When I began practicing and I opened a practice in Philadelphia, Many patients of color would come to me and say, you know, Dr. Taylor, I've been looking for so long for a physician who looks like me, Mm. who understands my skin, who understands my hair. And I am just so grateful to finally find you. And then I noticed that over the years, I had increasing numbers of skin of color patients. And she went on to revolutionize the field. So in 1999, she founded the first skin of color clinic at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center to advance treatment and research and cosmetic procedures for patients of color. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And in 2004, she created the Skin of Color Society, which now supports dermatologists at over a dozen clinics across the U.S., including one that Jenna runs. Susan basically built the foundation upon which today's dermatologists are standing. We're making great strides. Now, here's one area where the gap remains, and that is in the workforce, the skin of color Mm -hmm. workforce. So when we look at the workforce of dermatologists in the U.S., only 3 percent are black and about 4 percent are Hispanic. Yeah, wow, that's that's super low. I mean, I've heard that dermatology is one of the least diverse specialties in medicine. Yeah, only after orthopedic surgery. Now, those strides are real. Um, the textbooks used to train dermatologists have diversified over the years, especially the two big ones, dermatology and Andrew's diseases of the skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American Academy of Dermatology has been pushing to create an image bank and more training materials. But You can't fix an entire field of medicine with pictures alone. Right. I mean, there's a lot to focus on. Recruiting and training more dermatologists of color, Mm -hmm. funding more clinical trials focused on patients of color. Yes, all of those things are important together. There's a lot of work to do. But this next generation of dermatologists, people like Jeanette Okoye at Howard, are determined to do it. So one of the things I try to instill in my trainees is We have to treat all of our patients like VIPs. The horror stories I hear from my patients about how they were treated by physicians of different types, I just want to erase all of that. I want them to have a really great experience with us. I want to sit in the room, spend time with them, 
touch them when other people wouldn't have touched them and make sure they understand their plan of care. We write things down for people and we spend a lot of time getting to understand their life. Wow. I mean, she sounds like an awesome doctor, Emily. I'll say it. Yes, she is. And Jenna Lester in California is, too. She continues to write about systemic racism in medicine, calling out the institutional barriers to becoming a dermatologist. And Susan is so proud of the work that Jeanette and Jenna are doing. She sees them as the next generation, taking skin of color dermatology where it needs to go. And they're going to bring the people behind them up. Yeah. And then I can go to the beach and retire. (laughs) (laughs) Which, Which beach would you want to go to? First. Wyale, I love Wyale in Maui. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. That would be my beach, Emily. That's my beach. It's waiting for me. <laughs> it's waiting for me. This is this is a person that deserves a beach, Emily Kwong. Absolutely. Yes. You know what she I mean? She does. She does. Dermatology has changed a lot, but it still has a really long way to go. All right, Emily Kwong. As always, we appreciate you and your reporting. Thank you, Maddie. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. Boston's mayor feeling the pressure after ordering a series of new COVID requirements. Mayor Michelle Wu has become the target of recent hateful comments targeting her gender and her ethnicity. John Maroney's live in Boston with more on that. Ten people's emotions are raw when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. And this week, the city's new mayor found herself caught between the two. Michelle Wu helping to renew a Christmas tradition in Dorchester days after detailing stricter COVID requirements in Boston. We're at a time in our country where we need to find ways to bring people together. This week, protesters filled City Hall as the mayor announced plans for a vaccine mandate and vaccine passports. Reaction was swift and in some cases, misogynistic and racist. Here's what she told GBH Radio. There's constant calls associating me with the same hateful, racist, xenophobic language that the former president used in describing the virus and its origins and who was to blame. Definitely for the last two years, been extremely hard uh, for the Asian community. Philip Chung is with Quincy Asian Resources. He says the attack on Boston CEO is disappointing. I think no matter where we stand in terms of policy, it shouldn't be, you know, any anti-hate. I think the vitriol is really more being amplified at a level because it's online. Lydia Edwards is a Boston city councilor. She supports the new mayor's efforts to fight the pandemic and thinks that's true for most people in town, despite this recent rash of anger and hatred. Majority of people voted for Michelle Wu, who supported this vaccine uh, vaccine mandate and vaccine passport when she was a candidate. So I believe majority of people in Boston support what is going on. I know we're doing the right thing. I won't be intimidated out of doing the right thing. Now, despite the outrage from some, the mayor and the city, they are moving forward to institute these new COVID mandates starting January 15th. Well, I'm in Boston, John Maroney, NBC 10 Boston. Now, I probably wouldn't say this in front of white folk, but in front of your own speak my mind. Rosa Parks ain't do nothing but sit 
So we have an update on that viral video we talked about yesterday. The woman on the plane who got into a fight with an elderly man about masks on Christmas Eve. So if you missed it, we're going to let you see it again, okay? Wow. So we are now learning that the woman is reportedly an actress who was in Baywatch. She's also been a cheerleader for the NFL, was also in Playboy. So she was arrested on federal charges. Assault. Oh, the L.A. trifecta. <laughs> Assault charges. There's her mugshot. She could end up in prison up to a year, a $100,000 fine. So there are also new reports about what started the fight, okay? The woman had gone to the bathroom. She couldn't get back to her seat because the beverage service had started. The flight attendant told her to just take an empty seat. The woman responded by saying, and I'm not even comfortable saying this, but she said, quote unquote, what am I, Rosa Parks? Wow, hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy Reapers. <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. So there are also new reports about what started the fight, okay? The woman had gone to the bathroom. She couldn't get back to her seat because the beverage service had started. The flight attendant told her to just take an empty seat. The woman responded by saying, and I'm not even comfortable saying this, but she said, quote unquote, what am I, Rosa Parks? That's when the elderly man reportedly told her it was an inappropriate comment, that she isn't black, that she isn't uh, in Alabama, that this isn't a bus. And that's when things turned nasty. And he said, sit down, Karen. It just, there, where do you start with this? First of all, that's not, Rosa Parks wasn't standing. She was, like, there's, everything is wrong about this situation. But she said it as an insult. I, yeah, I know, but she didn't even use it in the right way, which is, if we're going to add one more thing on top of this cake, I'm so, like, it, the transgressive nature of spitting in somebody's face. You played college football, we watch football. They fight all the time. Spitting is the only thing that they mention after the game. Like, hey, right? the linebackers. Yeah, that's a really, that is, I feel like that's the line with human beings. And spitting in somebody's face so when there's a pandemic right. is no different than shooting a bullet. And an 80-year-old man, you're going to spit right in his mouth and you might have COVID. Clearly, you're a person that does not wear that mask. I don't which is what you're fighting for. You're fighting to put your mask up. You're not wearing a mask because you're spreading COVID. Would you spit on somebody? I mean, you can't even write this stuff at this point. It's so ironic and so absurd. People live in this world that's not real and they think they could say and talk and do anything that's and it. then when they leave their house they think that's the world. Oh, I could spit and talk and tell you to go kill yourself and do whatever and then this is it. We need more repercussions for people doing this. No flights. Put them in jail. And I understand it. I, I don't even want to go there, but go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I just go back to what I said from the beginning is did our social contract that we've had for quite a long time in America, is it just tearing apart? Is the decency we all committed to and moral responsibility to sit down and behave on a plane, is that gone? Because at some point I'm seeing in America unravel and not have any type of 
I do this for you because you're it's, my neighbor. It's a weird, now it's, it's I punch you because you're my neighbor. You know what it is, Tori? I spit on and I'm you? so glad you said that. It, there's a social contract that now that we're in the a day and age of like people like to play with language. So like, oh, I guess I can't do this now. And yeah, I'm sorry. And you're America. It's like no, we have a social contract where it's not illegal for me to stand behind you in line and hum. Just, just some weird thing. But it's like we don't do that because we're all in line and no one right. wants that. It's not illegal. Did you use You're just being humming just like you can disrespect. It's just like something. There's things that are not laws, but things that we just do. Common law. Because right. we're around a bunch of people, and it it does seem like that's gone. And I don't know how we get that back or where we get that, but I don't here think we are. Means that bad. You don't think just humming in line is not that's, as as bad as some other things. So what if I just about. started freestyle rapping while we're in line at CVS? Is I that would fine? probably be like right on. <laughs> I would give you a, I would give you a beat. I would give you a beat. Okay. I love y'all. I would like the locks changed again in the morning. And you know what? You might mention that we'd appreciate it if next time they didn't send a gang member. A gang member. Yes. Yes. Well, you mean that kid in there? Yes. The guy in there with the shaved head, the pants around his oh, ass, the prison tattoo. Those are not prison tattoos. Oh, really? Those and he's not going to go sell our key to one of his gangbanger friends the moment he is out our We've door. We've had a really tough night. I think it'd be best if you just went upstairs right and now. And what? Wait for them to break in? I just had a gun pointed in my face. You lower your voice. And it was my fault because I knew it was going to happen. But if a white person sees two black men walking towards her and she turns and walks in the other direction, she's a racist, right? Well, I got scared and I didn't say anything. And 10 seconds later, I had a gun in my face. Now, I am telling you, your amigo in there is going to sell our key to one of his homies. And this time it'd be really fucking great if you acted like you actually gave a shit. We have some breaking news just into our newsroom. Embattled Lafayette City Judge Michelle Odenay has resigned. Judge Odenay was recently taken off the bench under a mutual agreement between the judge, the state Supreme Court, and the state Judiciary Commission after a video surfaced of the judge saying racial slurs to describe a man who attempted a burglary. The video was taken inside the judge's home and made its rounds on social media. The controversy set off a firestorm, and many called for her resignation, including Governor John Bell Edwards. Judge Odenay submitted her resignation letter to the state Supreme Court and the Secretary of State today. In it, she says, quote, I am sorry for the pain that I have caused my community and ask for your forgiveness as my words did not foster the public's confidence and integrity for the judiciary. We will have much more on this breaking news story, the resignation of Judge Michelle Odenay, on our newscast coming up at 5 o'clock and right here on KLFY.com. Week marks one year since the U.S. Capitol attack, a seminal moment for Capitol and D.C. police. But a review by the News 4i team shows how it was also a unique day in the history of D.C.'s fire and EMS department. As our Scott McFarland reports tonight, the frontline emergency workers are accustomed to putting their lives on the line, but never in the way they did January 6th. Hearing the roar of a violent crowd fighting for America and his own life on January 6th. <laughs> Police Sergeant Aquilina Gonell found himself in hand-to-hand -hand combat at the West Front Tunnel. Show them how to lock the shields together and hold the shields. Suffering a crushed foot, a torn shoulder, and a mangled thumb. I almost lost my life. 
He was a hero in need of a hero. And those heroes came in the form of DC's emergency medics, trained first responders working their way through a dangerous mob to help the wounded officers and wounded protesters alike. Fighting themselves uh, through the crowd just to get to us. It says a lot. But DC Fire Chief John Donnelly said that meant taking risks like never before. Our starting procedure is you don't enter a crowd without law enforcement and they didn't have law enforcement with them. But January 6th was no ordinary day for these men and women. So they had to make a decision about whether or not they would take that risk, and they repeatedly took the risk. A News 4i team review of emergency radio calls and D.C. government official email shows the depth of the challenges firefighters and medics face January 6th. A sampling of alerts sent by D.C.'s fire command staff to district officials shows at 7.44 a.m. Large crowds reported on the mall at 9 a.m. Warnings that 10,000 people were outside the ellipse perimeter. At 10:41, a request for additional units to help navigate the crowds. The danger was nobody knew what the crowd was going to do. By afternoon, the riots had begun, and the command staff's updates showed growing chaos. Requests to transport multiple injured officers. The police barricade had been breached. Then reports of a shooting. Report of one shot in the Capitol. Report of a shooting in the Capitol. A Capitol Police officer protecting members of Congress shot Ashley Babbitt of California as she breached the window of the House Speaker's lobby near where lawmakers were being evacuated. In a video later produced by the D.C. Fire and Emergency Services Department, first responders described the chaos of that moment. Trying to figure out what exactly was going on, if it was an active shooter situation. While charging in to rescue the wounded. Three times priority. We do have one shot in the chest. Uh, need the resources up here now, immediately. Firefighters say the challenges of that day were unlike any other. For the first time in my life, I got to see what a true mob mentality was like. And that mob mentality meant some in the crowd January 6th turned on the very people here to help them that day. The firefighters and medics faced a litany of threats. They were being spit upon. Yes, sir. They were being called names. Yes, sir. One first responder described enduring physical and racist threats. When I got, like, you know, shoulder bumped and called the inward like a million times. Chief Donnelly says some in the mob not only laid hands on the firefighters, but stripped them of their equipment as they attempted to save lives. And in those cases, they would work around those pockets to pockets where there was least resistance. Internal D.C. government emails show the responses to the injured continued well into the night. But Donnelly said the most lasting wounds for his team of heroes aren't physical. I think we have some responders that are, are processing the event in the stress and mental health portion of, of our job. A challenging day and challenging aftermath for officers like Sergeant Gunnell. I commend each one of them. And for D.C.'s fire and EMS responders, putting their lives on the line like never before. Scott McFarland, News 4 IT. This is the city of Chicago. Chicago. Live at the 3rd District with more on this story. Sean. Yeah, Chicago police acknowledging that there is an active investigation, but are providing few details into exactly what happened during this death at the 3rd District Police Station 10 days ago. The family of 33-year-old Irene Chavez says what they have been told so far does not add up and is not nearly enough for them. Chavez was 33, an Army veteran and a well-known member of the LGBTQ community here on Chicago's South Side. Now, the family's been told that she was taken into custody on a misdemeanor after being asked to leave Jeffrey Pub late on the night of December 17th. Sometime in the early hours of December 18th, she was found hanging inside of her holding cell. 
The family says a report given to them by the Chicago police was heavily redacted and provides no other details. We're not quite sure exactly what happened to my sister. I did my best to look out. I visited the headquarters. I asked detectives questions and I hit a red light, a stop sign, a door every single time. And now I'm here to just really put out there that my sister was found, hung in the third district police department and holding while bounded apparently. And I'm not quite sure how something like that could happen. I do know that Chicago Police Department is here to protect and serve. And that comes with taking care of the mental state of the people that they take in. I'm not quite sure what happened with my sister again. But I do feel that if she had been found at a bar and maybe had some drinks, that maybe the Chicago Police Department could have protected more. Again, CPD News Affairs telling me today that this is an active investigation. Now, uh, a look at her cause of death remains pending, according to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, 10 days after her body was found. Of course, we're trying to get more details. We'll have the latest coming up new at noon. For now, we are live on the south side. Sean Lewis, WGN News. Again. His death ruled a homicide. Corrections officers now on administrative leave. 17-year-old Cedric Lofton was arrested September 24th. Two days later, he died. The autopsy report released today. Brett Buganski combed through it. He joins us live outside the Juvenile Intake and Assessment Center. Brett. Jeff, Emily, we have the very autopsy report that you were just talking about, and it clearly states here the matter of death is considered a homicide. And in this autopsy report, it said Cedric Lofton's heart stopped working after a physical altercation inside of this JIAC facility. The manner of death, homicide, cause of death, complications of cardiopulmonary arrest sustained after physical struggle while restrained in the prone position. It's the ruling from the Sedgwick County Medical Examiner surrounding the in-custody death of 17-year-old Cedric Lofton. Essentially what, what occurred here is they, they took away his ability to breathe. They, they deprived his body of oxygen. While authorities still have not released the videos to the public, some have seen the videos of those critical hours. Wichita NAACP President Larry Burke said he saw body camera video of police officers with Lofton prior to the officers dropping him off at JIAC, and Lofton is still alive. It seemed like other than being irritated for having been that done to him and the transport thereof, he was in relatively good good shape and good condition. Law enforcement released a timeline of the events. It includes Wichita police leaving Jayak at 4.16 a.m., but then coming back at 5.19 a.m. The autopsy described an incident between Lofton and Jayak staff starting at 4.20 a.m., saying when they let Lofton out of his cell, he approached a staff member who then motioned for another staff member to enter the lobby. It said Lofton was uncooperative and agitated. Six minutes later, they grabbed Lofton, who got free and allegedly punched one of them in the head, which led to employees restraining him in a nearby room with the help of more staff members. By 5.08, the report said Lofton calmed down and made snoring sounds. But four minutes later, 
Lofton didn't have a pulse. What we saw is a, a, a young child, 130 pounds, five foot seven, being killed. Now, we still haven't seen the video from inside of the JIAC facility. The county is declining to comment on this autopsy report saying that is still an active investigation. Now, KSN did confirm that multiple Sedgwick County employees are on paid administrative leave because of this very case. Here for you live outside the JIAC facility tonight, Brett Pagansky, KSN News 3. Daryl Dedman apparently wasn't through. He had two girls in his truck as he was leaving this parking lot, a big F-250 pickup truck. James Craig Anderson, the man who was beaten almost to a pulp, was stumbling down this curb. That's when police say Daryl Dedman hit the gas, jumped the curb, and ran right over his victim, smashing him. Here you see James Craig Anderson in a hotel parking lot as he first comes into view in the lower right corner of the screen. This is after he was beaten, according to law enforcement officials. He staggers into the headlights of Mr. Deadman's truck. The truck backs up and surges forward suddenly, running right over the defenseless man. Take a look again as the approaching headlights glow on Anderson's shirt, then disappears under the truck. According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. I ran, I ran that, that nigger, nigger over. And off the top, an outburst in court by the man whom police say crashed into a group of children, killing two of them and sending four others to the hospital. We're also learning new details about his previous encounters with the law. CBS 4's Joan Murray has been on this story for us all day long. She joins us live enough with Wilton Manners with the very latest on all these details. Joan, fill us in. Yeah, good evening, Jim. Well, people continue to stop by this makeshift memorial for the two little girls who died. You can see some Buddy is there right now and they're lighting a candle. They're leaving candles and stuffed animals and flowers for these children. Meanwhile, in court today, the man accused of causing all this mayhem had an appearance, but he had an outburst and then left. Joined in grief, two Fort Lauderdale police officers left stuffed animals, the growing memorial to the two little girls who were killed in a devastating hit-and-run crash Monday. Four other children were hurt too critically. Heart-wrenching. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. The arrest of 27-year-old Sean Greer, who's charged in the deadly hit-and-run crash, has done little to ease the pain. You can't make me say this. Greer scuffled with detention deputies during his bond hearing. Investigators say he has confessed to the hit and run that happened when he tried to pass a Broward bus and careened out of control. Using a bumper he left behind and a partial VIN, investigators say they found his damaged Honda parked at his girlfriend's home. According to Greer's arrest report, Greer told her if the cops come by, don't tell them whose car that is. Senate has never had a driver's license in the state of Florida. Its privilege has been suspended since 2016. Not only should Greer have never been behind the wheel of a car, but we learned he's on probation for a burglary in Broward County. And because of that probation violation, he will stay in jail for now.
Your Honor, he stepped away. He didn't want to come back and step in front of the judge. Okay. This terrible tragedy, as you see, has really united this community in sorrow. It has also highlighted the outrageous uh, traffic, the speed of the traffic on this road, and there is a movement underfoot to try to do something about this speeding cars along this section of Powerline Road. Now, we also understand there's a private service going on right now at nearby Richardson Park. That defendant remains in jail, and he's going to be there a while because he is without bond on not only one outstanding violation of probation, but another outstanding violation of probation. And even if he settles that, he has thousands of dollars he'd have to come up with in bond money for the more than a dozen charges he's facing related to this hit and run. In Wilton Manors tonight, Joan Murray, CBS 4 News. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, 1931-2021. Almost a century ago, a little African boy was born to a small family in a small town where gold mining was the chief industry. The town was Clerksdorf, in what was then called the Transvaal. Father was a teacher, and a young boy wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. But the politics of white supremacy, known by the term apartheid, prevented him from making that choice. That policy, developed by the National Party after it won election in 1948, passed a law called the Bantu Education Act of 1953, legalizing racial segregation in schools. That state decision forced Desmond Impilo Tutu to change from teacher to preacher. A new history was written. Desmond Tutu studied, graduated, and was ordained an Anglican priest and began a steady climb in the church hierarchy, being named its archbishop in 1986, the Archbishop of Cape Town. As the anti-apartheid movement swelled in South Africa, so too did repression by the state. And with most militants from the African National Congress, or ANC, driven into exile, the archbishop stepped into the breach, presiding over funeral after funeral and giving voice to the black oppressed majority of the nation. He played a pivotal role in speaking out against the racist system of government and suffered arrest and attacks by police tear gas at protests. Throughout it all, he stayed true to his religious beliefs, a committed Christian who saw all life as valuable. He preached for peace and reconciliation. He preached, too, for justice. He spoke out firmly against violence, whether by the government or the freedom and as the profile of the little priest grew, so did his concerns for justice and freedom, even beyond the borders of South Africa. The archbishop, lovingly called the arch 
by his family, called the government violence, repression, and separation against the Palestinian people a new form of apartheid. He called for freedom for the Puerto Rican people from the United States government. He critiqued the suffering and state violence against the Muslim minority in Myanmar, and the little priest even visited a man on death row where he wondered why a man had to be shackled in a little room divided by a glass window where the door was closed, shut, locked, and didn't even have door handles. The arch was quiet, serious, a ray of spiritual light in dark places, and a joy to meet. When apartheid fell in the 90s, and South Africa became reborn as a democracy. Archbishop Tutu heightened his critique of the new black government, which he said was getting rich as the people got poorer and poorer. He was short, yes, but his spirit reflected a giant. His passage on this planet was a message of love for worlds oppressed, no matter where they were. He struggled for change with his prophetic voice, his sweet humor, his deep love, and a boundless sense of compassion. Desmond in Kilo Tutu, born October 7, 1931, returned to his father's after 90 summers, an example of love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of White Supremacy. Gusty Renegade, the black O.J. Simpson, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, January 1, 2022. So I have been told, I uh, hope folks, uh, if you did any of the madness, went out to celebrate, and especially if you had any firecrackers, like, woo, got to be extra super special sober. Make sure we leave with all our fingers and toes and everything else if you did any of that goofiness. Um, New Year, same system of white supremacy racism, same counter-racist goal, replace white supremacy with justice. This is our compensatory call-in every Saturday, opportunity for victims of white supremacy to exchange views, counter-racist suggestions uh, on things that we can do, should be doing to try to solve this problem as soon as possible. Number to dial, 720-716-7300. The code 564. Four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if 
you would like to participate. Things to share. Uh, before we get to some of the folks who dialed in, uh, one, I am just thankful to have survived, made it to 2022. Not sure how far we'll get, but just thankful to be here. Man, this week, 2021 was agony. Very challenging year, I think, for many people, especially for Gusty, I think, many other folks as well. Wow. The last week, excellent microcosm. There are many specific metrics I could use to, like, qualify. Exactly how bad was 2021? Let me tell you. But we'll just stick specifically with the weather. So I said six months ago, Seattle, according to white people, in the entire recorded history of this area of the world has had exactly six 100-degree days. Three of them were the final Saturday, Sunday, and Monday of this past June, including Monday being 110 degrees. We fast forward through another heat wave, the bomb cyclone, the wettest autumn in recorded history also to one of the coldest weeks in recorded history. The forecast, I think they said last night, that time we went off the air, it was 25 degrees. It was predicted that it was supposed to drop to 16. I have no idea because 25 was more than cold enough for me. I think I wrote online, I said, Truthfully, I think I experienced cognitive impairment because it was so cold, like all of that. I'm sure people in Chicago and whatever laugh, like, you go swimming to 25 degrees. People in New York, New England, Boston, all that stuff. That is not typical Seattle weather, what we've had here this week. And quite frankly, I would not go to any of those places. <laughs> I said I wouldn't go to Chicago in the wintertime because I cannot survive this sort of weather was a tussle all week. I haven't even seen my street. Like it snowed, I think it snowed four times. There's just like a compacted, thick sheet of snow and ice over the entire street. I slipped twice in the exact same spot. Almost slipped three times in the exact same spot. treacherous every single day, and we're still in the system of white supremacy racism. So just happy to have made it to day one, especially because there were so many, like just I think this past week, the people who did not get to 2022, John Madden, I wrote about that online. I said, man, you want to talk about time theft? The number of black males, non-white males in general, but black males, like generations of black males, the amount of time and energy totally wasted on playing the video game eponymously named after the late Raiders football coach. Time and energy. But he didn't make it to 2022 Betty White didn't make it to 2022. I wasn't even joking or being flippant. I was just being accurate. The record 
literally days of, I think, hours. This week, I think, they were planning, what are we going to do for Betty White's 100th birthday birthday party? Betty White suspected racist. I don't even know if that's her name or not. I have to check Betty White. Golden Girl, that's what keeps me Golden Girl, like, wow. But they were planning, like, what are we going to do for the Golden Girl in 100 years? And incidentally, she said health. They were asking her before she passed, like, what are things that are important in 100 years? Of health. Trying to have the highest quality health that you can and taking excellent care of yourself, eating correctly so that you can hang out as long as you can and have a high quality of life for as long as you can. But she didn't make it to 2022. Senator Harry Reid didn't make it to 2022. Now, that's one. I just said Colin Powell passed, and it's a black mark on his record. Talk about Iraq. Got us in that foolishness. Lied to the U.N. Gave that speech, that bogus speech, right? They didn't do that with Senator Harry Reid, former House Speaker, suspected racist. In fact, I didn't hear one single person mention, dang, didn't Harry Reid have that comment? about President Obama not having Negro dialect and not being too dark. I didn't hear one article, not Amy Goodman, my BFF, not one person. Let's go over some black marks on House Speaker Harry Reid's record. That didn't happen, unless I missed it. Maybe so. You all can correct me. It was quite a few folks. We heard... Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu passed away at the beginning of the week, victim of white supremacy. Everything was about apartheid, racism, white supremacy, and unfortunately, I knew it was going to come. Forgiveness? Man, I can ask forgiveness. Man, I've mentioned the documentary so many times, I should probably own it. Uh, Witness to Apartheid. I've watched it many times. That's why I don't own it, because I've watched it so many times. Uh, But Desmond Tutu, and this documentary came out in 1986. It's kind of old, but it's really good. It's only an hour long. Desmond Tutu is in it. All the folks that are scrambling and trying to do some research, you want to watch something with him in it, do the time or invest the time. You probably go to university library and they'll have it, probably on VHS even maybe. Uh, but witness to apartheid, he makes an appearance, and, whoa, he has quite a bit to say and the barbarism and violence of white supremacy in that part of the world is something to behold. Anyway, in the midst of all that, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu appears, since they talk so much, Nobel Peace Prize and nonviolence, you know, it would be like that no-count Gus, savage. You turn the other cheek, you forgive, reconcile. That's what it's got to be about. They had a really despicable piece in the New York Times, so it was all about that, Desmond Tutu and reconciling with racists. In Witness to Apartheid, Desmond Tutu unambiguously conceded, hey, nonviolence did not work. We did not deliver the goods. Now, this was made in 1986, so, I mean, you know, apartheid was still ongoing, so they say, had not ended yet, quote, unquote. But he said, hey, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Well, there has to be a moral, a minimum moral compass. That was already a minimum moral compass, meaning there has to be at least some, you know, some things we won't do. 
some protocols, some lines we won't cross, to use a metaphor. He said, as it relates to black people, that isn't so. Any means necessary to maintain domination over the Negro. He said, I'm paraphrasing, but not really. That is like almost verbatim what Desmond Tutu said. They didn't play that. They didn't dig up that archive this week. It was all reconciling. Yes, forgive. Yes, yes. Incidentally, I really appreciate and try to play news segments from the specific region, geographic region of the world where the event is taking place. So I had clips from South Africa to play. I listened to uh, Cape Talk 702 on a regular basis and have for years. Uh, but I always try to give uh, credit time to Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, to be in greater confinement. He was on death row for more than, I mean, for like decades. And to still be attentive, globally reporting, timely, what can I say? Extremely impressive, uh, deserves high commendation. I try to give high commendation, make sure we include his voice. But that was why I conceded to play his report. Uh, it was pretty comprehensive, even though I do try to get in reports geographically based. But, oh, well, lots more to come on uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. Check out Witness to Apartheid if you have time. Next, in spite of the cold weather, I have been productive. So we are reading Alice Siebold's Lucky in the Cows Book Club every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I do not do a whole lot of uh, metaphor twisting arms and you've got to come to the book club and it's so important and you've got to listen and all the best of followable. I don't do all that. Book club is there. I announce the book, let people know. I do mention when people come to me on a regular basis, email or wherever else, and ask for books like, you know, we have a cow's book club for a decade. <laughs> I just, I was reminded of that. Like, Gus T., I can stand by my word and say I have facilitated a counter-racist book club for a decade with an impressive list of books. The current being Lucky, Alice Siebold, which I found by reading the newspaper. Man, she has a poem. All the many, many, many articles that they have about, you know, Mr. Broadwater and the false conviction and this white woman and her lame apology and another black male rapist that, nope, sorry, we got it wrong, after he served 16 years. She has a poem in the middle of the book that is titled, uh, well, the book Lucky, but the poem is titled, If They Caught You. I haven't heard one piece, not a half a word, what is this, what are we to make of this poem, all of that. Now, keep in mind what I just said about Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I'm going to read, this is Alice Bold's poem that we just read in the book club on Thursday. I have it on my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. I did a post about it. I have the whole poem there and then my short analysis. But this is the poem. If they caught you. Long enough for me to see that face again, maybe I would know your name. I could stop calling you the rapist and start calling you John or Luke or Paul. I want to make my hatred large and whole. 
if they found you, I could take those solid red balls and slice them separately off as everyone watched. I have already planned what I would do. For a pleasurable kill, a slow, soft ending. First, I would kick hard and straight with a boot. Into you, stare while you shot quick and loose. Contents, a bloody pink hue. Next, I would slice out your tongue. You couldn't curse or scream. Only a face of pain would speak. For you, your thick ignorance through. Thirdly, should I hack away those sweet cow eyes with the glass blades you made me lie down on? Or should I shoot with a gun close into the knee where they say the cap shatters immediately? I picture you now, your fingers rubbing sleep from those live blind eyes while I rise restlessly. I need the blood of your hide on my hand. I want to kill you with boots and guns and glass. I want to fuck you with knives. Come to me. Come to me. Come die and lie beside me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, they were going to make this into a movie. I feel like that's all I needed to say for the blog post. I, wait a minute, you could include this book with this poem sold a million copies, allegedly, and was about to be made into a movie. Cutting off testicles, slicing out your tongue, cutting out your eyeballs, blackmail rapist. This was about to be a movie. In 2022, this was about to be a movie. The Book Club. You can Again, you can see the poem, my analysis, where I talk about how all the things that she talked about, they did that to Emmett Till. The castration, gouged out his eyeballs. The white woman. Just like Patricia Cornwell, get to her later. But that is the book club. It has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I get, if you have free time and interest, wow. Alice Seabold, anybody if we have, if you're an alumnus at Syracuse University, oh, yeah, you should know all about this. Talk about this every time you go back on campus. Man, Alice Seabold and Lucky, are you serious? She wrote a lynching poem. Reading more important than watching television. Let us see. First segment that we heard 
Uh, they talked about alcohol and people having difficulties with alcohol, especially this time of year. Absolutely, that moron. Sobriety would be best. He does say that frequently, especially if you know you have problems this time of year. I would avoid hanging out with people if you know that they're going to be drinking. They're going to have liquor or whatever it is, and you do exactly what they said. Pressure. Come on, just have one drink, and we're having food. We always have at least one drink, and it's the new year. Don't even, you know, go through the temptation. You can call them up, text them, all of that good stuff, and, you know, say whatever you need to say, but just, hey, trying my best. Not even going to be tempted. We'll kick it at some point, but going to make sure that I minimize the alcohol intake. Get rid of whatever you have in your residence, give it away, whatever it is, but minimize the temptation as best you can. All the problems that we have, we need clear thinking minds, well-working brain computers. Uh, let's see. They had the report. They were talking about the increase in housing prices, and they were saying for black people specifically, is this the time to sell grandma's house? I thought that uh, segment so important. Conflict, that was N.D.B. Connolly at the beginning. He's a guest on the program, Black Male. His book is great. Uh, but he talked about how Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, <clears throat> that was about, or one component was about theft of black property. And he said that racists have got much more refined at taking black property where they don't have to go and massacre everyone. They can just do raise property taxes. That was one component of that report. <clears throat> Before they got to the conflict, I think they had a black male. He was speaking, and he said uh, his grandmother passed away. His dad says, hey, talk to some of the family members. Let's pitch in and pay the property taxes so we can keep the house. They didn't want to do it. Conflict about it. They end up selling the house. Very big. You heard all of that. No will much more likely that the house is going to sell below market value and all the rest of it. White people have lots of obstacles in place to make sure that those houses are not transferred and to make it so that you will not even invest and go forward. Give us the house. We've heard about this in so many different locations. I, don't, I can't even think of anywhere where this has not happened. Mr. Fuller has said, prepare to move. <laughs> best you could do. Uh, I think I've only heard like one or two suggestions, putting something in a trust, but I mean, it seems white people are very good, 2022 and beyond, taking property from black people. So at minimum, try as best you can uh, to minimize some of that. If you uh, own property, you have children, multiple children or what have you, try to speak with them about this, try to be as clear as you can with your wishes and make it easy as property, uh, easy as possible for that property remain in the family as best you can, but I mean, white people are exemplary uh, at that. And even the con, that's why it's so important in minimizing conflict uh, to make sure that this doesn't become something that causes conflict. Try as best you can before you transit. And I mean, nobody is promised tomorrow, Betty White, none of us. Try as best you can with the time that you have to uh, to get your affairs in order, I think is how they say it, euphemistically, especially if you own property. Let's see. The foster care segments, oh, there were so many of those this week. 
Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, general and child psychiatrist, brilliant for so many reasons. She used to say all the time, those throwaway children, gray soldiers can just come snatch them up and into foster care. They talked about how easy it is. I've seen that myself to come in and snatch up those black children. Remember those white LGBTQ dot, 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 women in Oregon, right south of me, where they had all those black children that they had taken in, got them out of social services, doing so-called adoptions and foster care and all the rest of it, and then killed them all. They made a documentary about that too, drove off a cliff and killed themselves and all these black children, non-white children. Make it easy to take children away from black people as though going to foster care is going to be phenomenal. It's going to solve all of your problems. Wait till you meet Jerry Sandusky. He loves working with you foster children. Throw away children. She said that play around with sex. The joke is on the offspring. They even talked about, and that's important because foster care, the goal is supposed to be one of those R words, reunification. Heard that. That's the goal. However, and even before reunification, it's as opposed to foster care, putting you with Jerry uh, Sandusky or his cousin or what have you, the goal is exactly what they said. If there's a grandmother, an uncle, an aunt who has the space and is willing, have you go stay there. And maybe we can even support financially because they do. Like, that's a huge racket for some households. Give me all those little nigger babies. Absolutely. Give me my $800. And sometimes you can say they have so-called special needs, so you can get a lot more than $800. Like, ooh-wee. You can do the same thing with the family member. Have them stay with grandma. We'll subsidize, you know, make it a little easier so it's not a financial burden for the child to be there. And, yeah, you, this is your someone you share DNA with. Yeah, you would have a vested interest presumably, in making sure that this person is safe. That would be better, generally speaking, than foster care. Jerry Sandusky, that was mentioned in the piece, being sexually molested. Dr. Welsing talked about that all the time, child psychiatrist. And the racism even there, they said some of the black family members who were willing to take in these black relatives, children, they said they didn't even ask. We would have gladly taken them in. We know about uh, Jerry Sandusky. We know about foster care. We would have gladly taken in our relative. They didn't even ask us. Standard operating procedure. Minister Malcolm X, I just mentioned that. That's in King Richard. That's in King Richard. Oh, that's why I love that film so much. They were going to come snatch Serena and uh, Venus told uh, Oracine and, and Richard, said, oh, man, we heard you all are being rough on the children. We might have to intervene. Love that movie. Should we be talking about that with uh, Dr. Kevorkian in a matter of days? Will Smith. Let's see. Oh, and then we got the racial classification confusion. I'm so glad I wrote that down. They said uh, the black male, he said he was placed in a house with a Puerto Rican white-looking woman. Now, was this 
someone who's classified as white, what I just said yesterday, classified as white, speaks Espanol, because that does exist, or is this a non-white person? Mistreatment is mistreatment, but I mean racial, classific- racial classification confusion is a problem. Puerto Rican is not a racial classification. Geographic location. You have individuals classified as white, individuals classified as non-white in Puerto Rico. You also have a lot of anti-blackness, so I mean confusion. Uh, let's see. Oh, they talked about Davon Johnson, who's from Muskogee, Oklahoma. That is Mr. Fuller's hometown, so-called, where he was born, Muskogee, Oklahoma. You never hear uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma mentioned for any reason, uh, except in sundown towns. He talked about Oklahoma a lot. But I was like, wow, I wonder if Mr. Fuller heard that. People should uh, send him that report like, hey, right there where uh, you were born at. Uh, young Davon Johnson, to hear about a black male in the sixth grade saving two lives, Heimlich Maneuver, and helped an elderly person away from a fire. Wow. Surprised he wasn't called a rapist, too. Spectacular to see a young black person being rewarded for uh, saving lives and being helpful. I mean, hey, does not get any better than that. That's exactly what Mr. Fuller talks about all the time, helping those who need the most help. A plus, double. Uh, Let's see. Oh, in Boston. Now, they just had, just mentioned Boston. Uh, I don't even know what the context was. We're talking about, oh, the rapists. We're talking about black rapists. Uh, Charles Stewart, when he did all the uh, blaming it on a black guy, said a black dude shot his pregnant wife and he lied about it. They made a documentary all that. Anyway, Boston was just bragging, like literally days ago, about, hey, look how far we've come. No count Charles Stewart, all that nonsense. Look how far we've come. We got our first non-white mayor, long legacy of white dudes being mayor in Boston. Look at us. Got Mayor Wu. We are doing it. Oh, wait a minute. What? Vaccine passport? No count. Go back to your country and the China virus came from your people. And And now, how many times has that happened since all this started? I'm just talking about the U.S. Uh, Now, certainly, white people have been threatened, too. They were going to kidnap and execute the governor in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. But, man, the number of non-white officials, a lot of times they'll be low level. It's not like they'll be the governor or something. They were going to do Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom. She had the same thing where people were threatening her, calling her a nigger uh, in Atlanta. Mayor Lucas uh, in Missouri, they were going to lynch him all around uh, masks, take this seriously, you know, trying to keep people safe and being threatened, racially threatened. Uh, Let's see. Speaking of threatened, man, Patricia Cornwall, that was when I stand by my work as well. That was the news clip where the white terrorist on the plane said she was Rosa Parks. Man, Love outcast. Thank them for the help with that. But I mean, I said no unnecessary travel. I think our caller in Florida had talked about he was flying from California to Texas or from California back to Florida. They had a layover in Texas. 
woman got on, was heading right in that direction. You're not putting the mask on. You're not the boss of me. Who do you think you are? I said, that's one reason. I would avoid unnecessary travel until things kind of calm down a little bit. But, I mean, wow. Spitting on someone, in my view, like that should be a chemical biological attack in the midst of everything that's happening right now. All of that violence and what have you, all they said was, hey, we got the drink cart going. It takes up the aisle. Just, you know, grab an empty seat. Just take a few minutes, and then you can mosey on back to your seat. What? You're not the boss of me. Tell me I got to wear a mask. What am I, Rosa Parks? It does not get any better than tacky. And apparently, like, Rosa Parks must have really upset white people because I, like, I never hear them mention her in a constructive manner. Like, if it's mentioning her, is something tacky like that, uh, or it'll be they'll bring up Claudette Colvin or someone else to say, Rosa Parks wasn't even the first one to do that. It'll be that type of thing. Like, she must have really agitated white people because I never, never just hear them mention her and have constructive things to say. It's always some kind of insult or what have you, barbershop, that type of thing. The news segment itself where they talked about all this with uh, Patricia Cornwell I thought was tacky as well. At least, like, I don't know. Do they normally do news reports like that where they started off and they're talking about this race soldier and they said, oh, man, she was an NFL cheerleader. She was in Playboy. She modeled. And they said, oh, the L.A. trifecta. <laughs> oh, she was on Baywatch. <laughs> the L.A. trifecta. Like, we're talking about a terrorist? Wasn't she spitting on someone? An elderly white man, no less? Then they get after all this, and they have the black newscaster, victim, and he's talking about, you know, it's supposed to be a social contract and a basic, you know, air of, of being civil. I have no idea what that means in a system of white supremacy, but okay. And how we behave, and that's just been lost. You know, if we, I'm out in public, I'm just not going to be humming in line behind you and you know, these little, well, well, what if I, I broke out and, and I just started rapping? Like, oh, man. And she says, oh, it wouldn't bother me. I'd give you a beat. And then she does a little sound effect like she's beatboxing and stuff. Like, oh, man, man. Now, which, in my view now, we're almost there. That was why I kept the music riding because, I mean, like, we started off talking, or I can't even say we started off talking serious because they started off with, the, oh, we got the L.A. trifecta. <laughs> Playboy and Baywatch. Like, if this had been a black person who had spit on an elderly white man, it would not have been that sort of jovial tone. It would have been, let's get to the charges. This is a disgrace. We are not playing around with these folks on this plane anymore. That would be another reference, I guess, for metaphors, too. But the tackiness abounds with that one, Patricia Cornwall. Uh, let's see. The D.C. firefighters, man, thought a retired firefighter. They talked about the folks' recollection from last year, January 6th. can't believe it's been a year. Uh, so they talked to the black female, and she says, man, we got close shoulder to shoulder. And, oh, I remember being called a nigger a million times. I almost did the rewind. I said I already used it, and that was kind of a big one with the Rosa Parks, like, you know, can't take all day. But like, whoa, 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 whoa. You could say you were called a nigga like five times, 10 times, 20 times, you know, even then, like 
a million times like, wait a minute now. We are not going to have more hyperbole like, oh, come on, come on, come on. Like, you're going to have to give me some a million times. Either you are super exaggerating or that environment was really bad, like substantially worse than, you know, what maybe I have been led to believe or was thinking about. A million times, that's what she said. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's lots more I can say. The last one I get in is Sean Greer. I played the segment at the beginning from Mississippi 2011 uh, when Daryl Dedman, a uh, convicted race soldier in Mississippi, uh, killed a black male, unarmed uh, black male, with uh, his vehicle, ran him over, with two white women in the vehicle, no less. Played that segment. We had the uh, white author on the program this summer, Angie Schmidt. We talked about her book, Right of Way, and she talked about exactly that segment. Black people living in areas where you don't have crosswalks, the speed limit is way higher than it is for residential areas with white people, and you have lots of black people who end up getting hit by vehicles. And she said the statistics, the people most likely to be hit and killed in a vehicle, exactly like what we heard, black people. We talked about all of that this past summer right at the end of July. When I posted about that report, uh, like the middle of this week, as soon as I saw it, someone wrote back and they said, he did this on purpose. I didn't post the report that we played. It was just a different, uh, different news article. And I said, whoa, what, you know, because they, they didn't say that. They didn't say, even say that in the report that we heard. I said, why did, you, why did you say he did it on purpose? And they said he ran into a cluster of children. I mean, what, you know, <clears throat> One and one is two? Like, how much evidence do you need? And then they went through the details of uh, his criminal history and everything. And I think it only took just me seeing a different report where they gave the details about where this group of children were standing. And it's like, man, he did do this on purpose. Maybe I was just resistant to just, you know, not thinking people would run into a group of children, but I mean, we did just talk about that this summer. Sean Greer, and they talked about all the violations, about parole, uh, yeah, parole violation again, probation violation, out to go and kill black children. That is the system. Uh, and another reason why I said, like, man, just be really mindful, alert when you're out and about, like, I don't know if that would have made a difference there, but, I mean, it is such a dangerous environment. That said, the number is 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, I would request our one program if we could not use metaphors. Uh, we heard a bunch of them. They, hit, they said in the alcohol segment, uh, that sometimes people get tripped up, alcohol will trip people up, and then they said uh, people get tangled up in alcohol. I don't know what that means. And then they said the there's something underfoot. 
And that was one of the later reports that they were talking about in the town. They were trying to deal with racism. I don't know what that means either. Something underfoot. If we could make an effort to be as explicit, precise as possible, that would be super appreciated. Uh, racists, they will use metaphors consistently to spread confusion. Victims, myself included, we are still learning. Sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our thoughts, so we will swap in a metaphor or a simile of some sort. Uh, if we could do our best to be exact, precise with our word choice, that would be super appreciated. I will give out reminders uh, about the words, metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, if you could use your mute button if you're in a noisy environment, that would be great, uh, just so we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Thank you kindly. Uh, let's see. We will get to the switchboard, see if folks have commentary to share. Let us know if you uh, had any constructive activities over your so-called holidays. <laughs> that would be grand uh, if they have any thoughts on, I guess, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, any of the other news reports we heard uh, or other things that happened as we concluded our 2000. 21, start off our 2022. Uh, let's see. First few folks uh, with a hand up, uh, retired firefighter previously mentioned, uh, should be with us. I'll nab other folks as I see hands. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, I'll first start with... Uh, I don't know if I don't know if you mentioned uh you had no reason to mention really mention Dan Reeves. Uh but uh there's a there's a uh small incident involving him uh that I would identify with racism. Uh he was at one time a player coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh and uh near the end of his playing career. And uh, he had the task of, uh, of being in charge of the quote-unquote running backs. Uh, at that time, uh, the great Dwayne Thomas uh, was a player on, on the team. And uh, the problem, I, I, was, I just mentioned Dan Reed from the standpoint of the problems that uh, – that uh, Dan Reeves uh, would give to Dwayne Thomas. Uh, by the, by, at that particular point in time, he was having some serious uh, payment issues. He wasn't getting the money that he deserved to get. And uh, the Dallas Cowboys at that particular point in time was terrible at, uh, at uh, paying their players what they uh, deserve to have and he being one of the best football players in the National Football League at the time uh, and uh, Dan Reeves was uh, uh, was known for giving him trouble uh, during the week of practice as a quote-unquote player coach. Uh, moving on uh, the the idea of preserving 
ownership of a house for non-white people who are racially classified as black is a very, very serious subject. A house is about the only thing that the average black person in this part of the world is going, it's probably going to have the most value of to be able to utilize that house to assist in sending children to college, uh, borrowing, borrowing money for different things. Very important, very important. And you should try to preserve ownership of that house as long as you can and prepare your offspring or some younger person to have control of that house. Uh, within my care group, uh, I, I am one-fifth of five siblings, a total of five siblings. All of us individually own homes, and uh, my, uh, my, my, my sister, youngest, she's the youngest, uh, uh, she has uh, control of a, another house other than the house that all five of us grew up in. And I just came from it about a couple of hours ago. Uh, so it's something that I value of, of keeping in our possession as long as we possibly can. That's the only thing that could be guaranteed as long as it can because there's no guarantees to it. White people are tricky. They are, they are thieves uh, in the most uh, sophisticated manner. And they constantly send you notes and whatnot and, and uh, have your number and be asking to buy your house and all of that. And, and unfortunately, a lot of non-white people go for that. Uh, last subject, uh, the case where the six children were hit. Uh, one of the first things I thought of that he did it on purpose. It, when, I, when I saw it was a white person that hit those six children, uh, immediately killing two, they, le they left two of them on the scene because they were dead on the scene. Uh, but when they showed the suspect, the first thing came to my mind that he did it on purpose uh, for, se for several reasons. One of the, mo one of the, one of the more sophisticated reasoning is the geographic structure of this part of the world that's called the concept of the United States is very militarily scientific, where especially the places where non-white people who are classified as black are allowed to stay at. There is no reason other than if a white person chooses to that they would, they would, come through those areas. And for most cases, it's for an incorrect reasoning. Other, other, other than that, it could be for, you know, some kind of work or something like that. But for the most part, it's for some sort of uh, ill repute reasoning on why they would come in the area in the first place. And, uh, and his behavior, his behavior also 
gives me the idea in mind that he did it on purpose. And I'll put it, I'll just say that uh, he did it on purpose until proven otherwise. And that's all I have to say. Thank everybody for listening. That is intelligent. Uh, say, I guess the same kind of logic with uh, Alice Siebold when they come out. Negro raped me. The Negro raped me. She lied until proven otherwise. Logical position to take. Yeah, I don't. Must have been. Uh, I said my brain is not working the best this week. It's a little cold. Might not have looked at the best information, but I'm glad other folks using logic looked at the information and immediately concluded Sean Greer did this on purpose. Uh, Let's see. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, and much obliged as well, talking with other folks in your care unit, so-called, to try to come up with a plan, some sort of strategy as best you can to try to keep that property as long as you can under current conditions of white supremacy racism. Race soldiers do have lots and lots of different ways. Dr. Welsing even talked about this, of getting that property from black people, probably coming up with more ways as we think, as we speak. Get a wheel. Put it in your wheel. Mm. They talked about that as well, not having a will. Woo. That's going to cause all kinds of problems, and as they said, probably means that that house is going to be sold below market value. So get a will. That can be very helpful also to what they said about minimizing conflict. You can write everything up. That way it's no fussing and griping, and I'm trying to out-joust this person for this. It's already written up, so everybody already knows what to expect. There's no surprises. If there's any griping and Grousing, you can talk directly to the person long before they have passed on to see if you can get them to change it around and whatever it is that you think you should be getting. Gus, we just finished paying taxes on that house that all of us grew up in, our mother's house. We just finished paying the taxes on it a few weeks, a few days ago. That is a big. That is a big one. Uh, Indy B. Connolly and Andrew Carl, a uh, white man, uh, spoke with us a few months later in 2015 after Indy B. Connolly, and he talked about those property taxes. That is a big one in terms of how white people practice racism. He talked about. Matter of fact, it's even been more recent reports. They were talking about. I believe it was in the Detroit area. Black people were being criminally overcharged taxes on their houses and it did result in some people in some black homeowners losing their property and then come to find out like oh man they've been overcharging them it is same pattern not we've been charging them the wrong rate and they've been undercharged no 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 they've been way overcharged on property taxes so lots of ways but awesome to plan as best you can see how you can attack those property taxes. So that's hopefully one we- one less weapon that they'll be able to use to pry that property away. Let's see. 
Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I'm sure Dan Rees, not as many as uh, John Madden, like John Madden will have, I mean, wow, uh, a platoon to come and defend that he is definitely not a suspected racist and honorary black person even maybe. Uh, but Dan Reeves probably also will have a good collection of folks to come and say, man, get out of here. Who is this radical, militant Negro talking bad about the late Dan Reeves? Michael Vick might even join the, uh, the chorus like, man, what are you talking about? Dan Reeves is awesome. He's great. He was awesome to me as a rookie. Like, uh, lots of that. Even John Gruden, I remember that. It was black players who came at us. What are you talking about? John Gruden was not racist. He loved black people. Get on out of here. Some stupid emails. Let's see. <laughs> Other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, launch should be open. If we do have any black males who have played some Madden, feel free to let us know the impact, because I suspect it is super widespread. If we had as many black males listening to Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Welsing, Dr. Cambon, Harriet A. Washington, we'd have this problem solved. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners. Um, hope everybody was safe during the new um, new year, bringing everything in all right. Um, one of the things that struck me was the the actual um, eczema, the skin uh, segment. I found that very interesting because as someone that has suffered from it from, from a certain time, the more knowledge I've learned about it, the more understanding I've had that it's more of like an allergic reaction a lot of times when it comes to psoriasis and a lot of skin ailments for non-white people. Um, in the book you, you read prior in the book club um, in regards to, I believe it was um, – Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I forgot the title for it. I think it was Countdown to Zero, if I'm correct. Is that correct, guys? Just Countdown. Countdown. Um, basically, in that book, it discussed so much in regards to different type of endo-disruptors, endo, endo, endo if I'm saying it correctly, um, different chemicals that are in the food, things that we touch, everywhere and i think for non-white people these things have different effects on us and obviously on our skin and i've found that food is one of the biggest things that have effects on um on us especially um large amounts of sugar for myself um so that segment was a, extremely great information to hear it's the first time i've really heard anybody speak about um skin and dermatology in that context um the other thing in regards to what uh, retired firefighter was just speaking about is the home ownership, and that's something that um, my attempted partner, me and her, have been focusing in on um, heavily. Um, and one of the things is where, you know, like where do we really want to settle down and actually um, 
purchase a home? Um, and how do we want to go about it? You know, do we want to pull in other family members so it's more organized in that way? And if we pull in a family member, can we avoid having, just like you spoke about, any issues in regards to if something goes wrong, how do we go about it and handle it? And I, I think a lot of that we may have to write down and get to first. But the current area that I live in, in a Time Out magazine, they labeled it one of the best places to live in, in, in the northeastern area. And ever since then, uh, my attempted partner, she noticed it just like I have. There have been an influx of white people moving into the neighborhood. And I mean an influx, like our, the neighborhood is predominantly non-white, but now it is, I mean, it's amazing. Um, and as well as LGBTQ, it's like they both moved, started moving into this area at the same time, um, which makes it extremely difficult now to, to purchase a home in the area that we live in. Um, talking a lot of money at, at, this, at this point. But um, it's still something that we, we would like to do and we, we think about because the area is so, it's, it's predominantly non-white, predominantly black. It would be really nice to have something here because there are other institutions that are also here to support black people that we would like to keep staying a part of and be a part of. But um, we'll see how that pans out. Um, that being said, I will mute my line. I'll wait for anybody else to have some comments. Thank you for your time. Much obliged, sir white LGBTQ new residents heard that consistently, heard that even in the news reports. Wow, all of these white people got their dogs, changed the whole neighborhood around. Wow. Lots of money, not surprised about that either. System of white supremacy racism. Probably got some nepotism, get some hookups with some jobs and other programs. Like, oh, yeah, love it, love it. Make that plan. Uh, I think other folks have said that writing can be helpful. Um, I don't know, maybe even talking to some other folks to kind of figure out what, what some of the major problems. I guess property taxes, that's one we've already heard um, because white people can escalate those. Uh, where, you know, people sit down and agree, and then people's financial situation can change, uh, and or if the property taxes go up, when you have that influx of all these moneyed LGBTQ individuals classified as white, that could change things uh, for some people, or depending on how long things go, but just trying as best we can to write things down and communicate with one another to try to minimize conflict and keeping that property in the family hand, so-called, uh, as long as possible. Um, I think that is a worthwhile goal, like definitely worth the time and energy. Um, just And might even help, you know, keep things constructive. Like we're trying to keep this property and working together to keep this property in our hands for as many generations as, pro as possible. There's, uh, there's one thing the I thought Gus. I'm sorry? Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. I was just going to add real quick, the skin report, I thought that was also extremely important. That's two weeks in a row. Uh, last week we heard the report, the Nigerian uh, doctor, or he's going to med school, 
and he said that he was seeing the drawings of pregnant mothers, but they were only white women. And he said it was causing problems in trying to communicate information to expecting black mothers because, obviously, they didn't look like that. So he started He said he wasn't even trained as a medical illustrator, but he trained himself mm-hmm. so that he could draw. This is what it looks like for black people because that's important. So to hear that two weeks in a row, but I thought that was super uh, important because I heard about that COVID toe and there might be skin discoloration and not having any images. We heard that today. They said uh, half of the children that are under age 18 are non-white. It might even be more than half are non-white. How is it that none of the illustrations show what COVID toe looks like for non-white people so they can at least be aware? That was all I was going to add. You going to say something else, sir? Uh, yeah, just uh, two things. One, one real quick is that, and I hope this helps anybody else that's looking into home ownership. There are a lot of programs that if you look up for first-time home buyers that will give you a little bit more in-depth insight as far as what, what you need to have to progress to get to the stage to be in that position to purchase a home. And once, once you do get it, some of the attributes and things that you may have to deal with ahead of time. Um, and that's what we signed up for, uh, a first-time home ownership program, to gather all the data first before we jump into anything. Um, and the second thing is in regards to that it, it, it's racial confusion that you just spoke about earlier in regards to the um, adopt, adopting adoption program and that segment and the person that was so-called Spanish or Puerto Rican, whatever. And it's something that I've noticed in a consistent theme whenever I communicate with other non-white people that classify themselves as Spanish or Hispanic or Latin, I, I have no idea the difference between all three of those, by the way. Um, I've noticed, I w- I've had a conversation with a, a coworker that classifies himself as Dominican, and he says, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not racist or anything like that. You know, even my girlfriend is, um, my wife is Puerto Rican, you know, so, you know, I'm not racist. And I was so confused, <laughs> and I don't even think he understands how confusing he sounded. As a man that classifies himself as Dominican, saying that he's not racist, but because he's married to a Puerto Rican woman, I, I don't even know what to say. So that classification with Latin, Spanish, Hispanic, that has always confused me, and I don't even think they understand themselves. So I, I just wanted to throw that comment out there because that was a recent conversation that I just had. I'll mute my line. The confusion, racial classification confusion, very effective. And uh, all, all of those, same thing, those are geographic locations. Dominican Republic, yes, that is a place. I'm told they have a lot of dark people there. Puerto Rico, yes, lots of non-white people there as well. These are not racial classifications. Like they have, they might have a lot of non-white people there, I'm sure they also have some individuals classified as white. And I'm also sure that white supremacy racism is a big problem. I would, if it was a workplace situation, I wouldn't say anything. I would just make a note of that, like, hmm, suspicious character. If I think, you know, this is someone who's classified as white, like, okay, we'll just keep an eye on you. Mm-hmm. Not even going to say anything because, yeah, it might just want me to, 
hop into your confusion that you just opened up there. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks, uh, if you all have commentary, questions, suggestions to share, the number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I think our caller in Georgia, I think maybe a month or so back, we were talking about Boston, probably the mayor, where they were going to elect a, a non-white mayor for the first time. And she said she thinks of Boston. She thinks not of Charles Stewart. She thinks of uh, Belleville or New Edition. We were in the midst of the blizzard this week. I went to the Whole Foods that's closest to my residence. Not a lot of black people live there. This is not the hood Whole Foods. They are in the midst of the blizzard. It's like, you know, 25 degrees, snow everywhere. They are playing Bell Bibb DeVoe poison almost loudly. I was like, man, if we are not, like, in hell, we are for sure, like, on the doorstep. I don't know if that's a metaphor, but, I mean, tough times. Long live Bobby Brown. It was a lot of Negro music uh, throughout the store. Maybe that was their way of, you know, having fun getting through the uh, cold weather and, you know, bad driving and such. But they were on New Edition and uh, Bill DeVoe at Whole Foods, Roosevelt as well. Uh, let's see. Oh, and Gisseline Maxwell, I forgot. Make sure I get that on the record. If this had been any other week, I would have included that audio. I had it, but I didn't want to, you know, go overboard with it. You can't play everything. Gisseline Maxwell, partner in crime with sexual predator Jeffrey Epstein. They didn't talk about castrating him. She was convicted uh, at the end of the week. I think before it was even a new year, she was convicted five counts of uh, sexually trafficking children. She'll be sentenced later this year. I think they were saying she could be in prison, greater confinement for the rest of her life. That one should be pointed out. We talk about sexual abuse. White women are perpetrators as well. And they have said there could be more because they it, there were rumors that there were lots of white people, powerful whites. They were talking about like Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew and Bill Gates even right here in my part of the world. They were talking about these other white people. Names might come up. Did they find evidence in Jeffrey Epstein's estate, things that he left behind and what have you? So there could be more to come, but white people do not care about children. And I guess we could be mindful, see if anyone writes any books talking about uh, snatching Gasoline Maxwell's ovaries. You know, we got to do some uh, mutilating of her, slice her eyes out, you know, now that she's a convicted sex offender. Thought that was important for this week, too. We have to keep an eye on uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Her trial is supposed to conclude, uh, I guess, whenever the jury uh, finishes deliberations. Might be sometime this week. Might take longer uh, to see if she'd be convicted of fraud. Folks were talking about reading, uh, or that, take that <laughs> people were talking about that case briefly. I haven't heard a lot about it and didn't really hear a lot of additional interest to read the book about that case. Uh, the author even had to come in to testify. 
but that should be wrapped up sometime soon as well. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, uh, comments to share, observations they want to make sure they get in. May I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I was listening to some of the segments, and it it did make me think of some things that's been going on at uh, at the courthouse, especially with um, it's involving a judge and uh, a black female. Um, underage victim that was reported to me by another black female was trying to uh, petition to get an injunction placed on a uh, a lieutenant from the city police department. And apparently this person or this uh, child really teenager was like barefoot um, and it looks like she was in the foster system and you know only seen her a few times is walking through the lobby and she was being abused apparently by this person who is a lieutenant so I don't know if the person had like connections or whatever. And I guess it was, uh, I hadn't heard of the person. It's a black male. Uh, so she was with an adult or, you know, another black female at the counter. So it was reported to me that they took the, uh, the petition to file an injunction you know, uh, sexual violence and everything like that. And the judge who does the dockets for the DV cases, um, domestic violence, he apparently has uh, denied and dismissed the petition. And from uh, the words of a white person, this white person called him a racist because just by seeing the zip code where this person resides, like the, uh, the address, um, it's a, it's a uh, area called majestic Oaks. So this person just seeing the zip code, like, nah, I'm just going to deny it. It's some black people basically. So the white supervisor in DR said, you know, he's a racist. So, the victim said to me, well, hey, she said that he a racist. He a racist. This is a white person saying that the white judge is a racist. So I thought about that about, you know, when I heard the judge Odenay in Louisiana, you know, I wanted to uh, add that to the workplace racism uh, because I, I did get that sense that he 
practice racism uh, while on the bench, but I hadn't been around him in a while. Um, and I wanted to add another uh, report where I was speaking to a victim, a black male. I wanted to get juvenile records, and his son is in a institution like um I guess you can say like mental institution or whatever the terminology is. Uh, and he was sharing with me that um, they were saying that the his son is being antisocial. He is, he's withdrawn from people. Um, and I'm not sure what if, if he has some kind of condition or not, but he needed to get his records to prove something in court. So, you know, those were some um, other situations that I uh, encountered during the week. And in regards to the lady that was on the um, the plane, and I just keep thinking about how they like to use that term, unruly passengers. Like, I just think of that word, terrorist. You know, she, she spat on the dude and... Uh, physically assaulted him and then they still are coming up with ways to um, describe her as someone who achieved being a cheerleader and was on Baywatch and things like that and they still find a way to uh, describe her in a constructive manner in my opinion um, and one last thing is the the segment about the imagery about the the, uh, the characters um, being non-white, I do agree with that. So I'm trying to do that myself. And white supremacy is powerful in that area. So uh, that's pretty much everything I have to share right now. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, our color in Florida. That's one I think all of us can be working on uh, in terms of the segment about how important it is in terms of media uh, and making sure, especially children, probably everybody, but especially children, uh, and making sure that they see themselves uh, in books, literature, things that they're watching on television uh, so that they're not just seeing an endless stream of white, 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 white. Dr. Wells used to talk about that all the time and also being cognizant so that the few times when they do see a black person, uh, it's not, you know, them being a clown and being silly or them being arrested or it's O.J. Simpson, like that type of thing. Seeing, you know, the young fellow who saved all those folks, Davion Johnson, that type of thing. See some black people who are doing well and doing something constructive and out helping folks, that type of a thing extremely important and i think i'd said before if you are taking time we're not rushing to the bedroom not making throwaway children you can take that time to amass media books all of that featuring black people so that that's regular your child sees that on a on a common on a daily basis uh can't be ignorant about racism white supremacy if you have already concluded, like, oh, Majestic Oaks, mm, that's for the dark people. Mm, 
No, none of that. Like, wait, wait a minute. And for that to be so widespread where it seems that many, many white people, they might be ignorant about some things. They are not ignorant about where the Negras are warehoused, Majestic Oaks or wherever it happens to be. Oh, yeah. That's where the colored folks are. Be careful going over there. Then to have a white person in a workplace context, <laughs> oh, yeah, that judge's race like, whoa, <laughs> write that down. I might even have to ask a question feeling, you know, how frisky. Why do you say Judge Johnson is racist? Might even whip the recorder out, people that have that. I'm like, what? They might know a whole lot of things uh, in terms of what, you know, Judge Johnson has done. Uh, let's see. And particularly given what happened with Judge Odnett in Louisiana, she had to resign this week. Now, white people don't get fired. They get transferred. She could end up, you know, doing whatever. Uh, most people have forgotten about this after a year or so. But at least for the interim, to have to resign? Wow. That would be something I would make note of, like, okay, if a judge, she wasn't even at work. She was at home when all this happened, saying nigger and the rest of it. Judge, if enough white people say, uh-oh, this white person has been accused of being a racist. I don't think you can keep being a judge or an enforcement officer. Keep a record of that so that could happen again. Let's see. And I think I said the same thing, Patricia uh, Cornwall, that's her name, Baywatch, NFL cheerleader, playboy. Like, I, if that had been me, that had been a rental change, it would not have been, you know, let's go through their list of life achievements, career accomplishments before their fall from grades. Oh, my God, this ridiculous on an elderly she spit on an elderly white man like we can fast forward through all of that like this is a terrorist period we're in the middle of a global health pandemic she could have had covid whatever else they said that she wasn't wearing a mask you didn't want to put a mask on like no need to be euphemistic about this one at all they talked about michael brown jr worse after he had been killed and he was just accused of stealing a cigarillo. She spit on an old white man. Let's see. Uh, other folks, comments that they want to make sure uh, they share. Do not wait till the last minute. Folks are spectating, still out cutting the rug, getting loose and fun for 2022. Cool in the game, but if folks have other constructive observations, questions they want to share, counter-racist suggestions, uh, do not wait till the last five. Uh, hand up if you have comments, observations to share any of the other news segments that stood out. We'll check in one more time, see if folks are spectating or have any other comments that they want to make sure that they get in. The report in Chicago, now I mentioned LGBTQ uh, several times, I think. Irene Chavez, that was the report, Chicago, where they found the young lady 
uh, hanging in her cell. Family wanted answers. And they said she identifies as LGBTQ. She is a non-white female. Uh, they had a number of pictures and family, non-white people. They were out, um, what shall I call it, marching, protesting, calling attention to this unjust death. And they had pictures of the victim, non-white female, victim of white supremacy. So she may have identified as LGBTQ. That is not a crime. Racist man, racist woman, they have been very effective uh, with their anti-sex propaganda, but still victim of racism found hanging in Chicago where they are notorious ad birds for all kinds of suspicious activity uh, with black people in custody. Uh, so I did think that was really important. Uh, let's see. As well as Cedric Lofton, that was the one, the 17-year-old black male uh, where he dies also suspicious circumstances, can't breathe, attributed to a homicide, and they say that, oh, this is an accident. We don't, we don't know what happened. 17 years old, total disgrace. They were both pretty young. Irene uh, Chavez, she was 27, I believe, and then Cedric Lofton at 17. The Irene Chavez case, in fact, that reminded me of Kimberly Randall King. Uh, folks, remember, that was uh, 2014, black female in Missouri, uh, Pagedale, who was found uh, hanging uh, in her cell. Uh, old white supremacy, racism, uh, the mental health toll that all of this takes. Uh, and or just lack of concern uh, for black life. You're in their custody. They're supposed to be paying attention. Make sure you're not having any mental health issues or need any assistance. Uh, let's see. Oh, make sure I get in as well. I did mention the poem from Alice Siebold, so we'll be here at minimum for the book club Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, fourth study session. We've not got very far. I think we're only like the beginning of Chapter 8. Uh, we've done our three sessions. They're in the archives. Feel free to catch up uh, if you like. It is a, uh, even know how to describe it. Wow. Um, just a whole book about lynching a black male, um, which is attached to a real-life lynching, where Anthony Broadwater, 16 years for a rape he did not commit and had to register as a sex offender, uh, it is fascinating for so many reasons, uh, and we have any, I saw a little piece of what is to come and was even more shocked. So looking forward to it, Alice Siebold, White Woman, Lucky, the book club. Uh, if you have any free time and need a film to watch, you can check out The Lovely Bones. That is based on a different book that she wrote, which is also about a white girl being raped. Uh, and killed in this one, but not by a white man. Even that, just the comparison contrast in her novel, The Lucky Bones, White Predator, how was the white predator treated there as opposed to Anthony Broadwater in Lucky? Anybody talk about raping the white character and slicing off his testicles? See if you find that part in The Lovely Bones. Let's see. Dr. Martin Kevorkian should be back on the program. Uh, I guess if we have newer listeners and you don't know who he is, white man admitted white supremacist. Uh, that's right up where I guess that's even more. We talked about a, white pro a different white person saying that another white person is racist. I think the only thing higher up on that is the white person admitting themselves, I am racist. 
Dr. Martin Kevorkian, way back, very first time he was a guest on the program in 2009, that very same program, we sat and talked. We knew eventually white people and money, they are going to make another matrix. We will maybe, if we have not solved this problem, we'll chat about it to see if that uh, also conforms to his theory uh, of these films, movies, stories, and how they conform to white supremacy racism. Uh, he should be with us later this month. Uh, we'll chat about the latest uh, Matrix film, uh, as well as King Richard. Uh, so if you want to check out some of the newer offerings that have come out uh, from a counter-racist perspective and be prepped to discuss, that should be coming up uh, within a few uh, weeks or so, return of Dr. Martin Kevorkian. Uh, his book, Color Monitors, which we talked about way back 2009, it's in the archives, uh, that is the theory, uh, the main thesis, rather, of that book, Color Monitors, The Black Face of Technology in America, the full title, uh, that films like The Matrix, uh, Terminator, uh, any of the uh, kind of white sci-fi type movies where you have machines, non-human elements that are some sort of problem are going to take over, they represent non-white people. I, Robot 2, quite a few of those. Um, and we talked about how the, all the, the previous films in the Matrix franchise uh, kind of fit this model. Uh, we'll see if the formula holds true uh, in the latest film and even the treatment of the black characters in the film, Mor uh, Morpheus and all the rest, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Will Smith's uh, wife in it. Will Smith was even supposed to be in the Matrix. He was supposed to be Neo. He said that was like a great career mistake. should have took that role. That would have been a, maybe a different film with uh, Will Smith as Neo. But anyway, we'll be chatting about all that with Dr. Kevorkian uh, later on in the month. Looking forward to that, uh, as well as some other uh, white guests uh, to start off 2022. Uh, just check out Facebook, uh, social media to see updates uh, for the latest programs. Uh, incidentally, listen to supported Counter Racist Radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, while you're on the blog, you can check out the poem, Alice Siebold's My Analysis, Who Writes a Poem About Lynching a Black Male, Dawn of a New Millennium, 1999. Uh, but the PayPal button is there. Directly beneath it, link to PayPal, link to Cash App uh, and Venmo, the Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign decals cash dot app forward slash dollar sign decals much obliged to all the investors who have kept us on the air uh, if we get to next month not frozen to death it'll be 13 years baker's dozen uh hopefully of constructive counter-racist information uh, you can also invest hitting the blog, or excuse me, hitting our wish list at Amazon.com. Uh, it is listed under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged to all the folks who have napped items over the years. Hope we have been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, if it's not asking too much, Gus T. would like his sound card replaced. I uh, had my external sound card loved so I could use my headphones. Guess I misplaced it in all the cold weather. Uh, as I said, I have not been thinking well, have felt cognitively impaired because it has been so frigid. Uh, so if I could have my sound card replaced, I would be super appreciative and 
hopefully can get back to uh, using my headset for the programs. Number one on the wish list, much obliged for all the folks who have nabbed items over the past, I guess, almost 13 years. Hopefully we have been continued to be worthy of your time and energy. Kudos to uh, B in Toronto as well. She emailed me. Uh, I guess she was on the program yesterday for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, but uh, she uh, got in the kitchen for the so-called New Year and made a vegan banquet that looks super delicious. That right there, that's something we can all do. Uh, one of our callers mentioned that earlier. People that have sometimes those skin conditions can be allergic to, uh, reactions to all that bad food, not consuming enough water, all the chemicals and those dyes and things that are in the food, you would be amazed sometimes. Just cleaning up your diet can clean up the complexion. Not a cure-all, but it can be helpful, especially that, like you said, all that sugar can be helpful. So that's one thing. We could be like B, Dr. Ruby Lathan, other folks that are trying to eat well, get some plants, veggies, maybe even try out some new, healthier recipes for 2022. They said that's one of the things we can be doing to fight off COVID, what we put on our plate, making sure we don't have any extra weight and are well-nourished. Any other comments folks need to get in? They satisfied for uh, our first Saturday of the new year? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, just uh, one observation that I noticed um, in regards to um, the Northeast area. They have Eric Adams now is going to be the New York City mayor. And um, I can't tell you how much, like, like real, this real, like, real hatred he's garnering right now um, as he's been becoming the second black mayor, I believe, if I'm correct. Um, almost like, I don't even know how bad David Dinkins was. I was a little bit younger, wasn't um, aware of how bad it was until after he passed. But um, there were just so many protests and people calling him a coon, Uncle Tom, all that other stuff, and non-white people as well as white people. Um, and one of the interesting things that I've, I've been hearing, uh, mainly from non-white people that are not black, um, they're concerned because supposedly he is, uh, he is pro-black. That's what most of the non-white people that aren't black are concerned about, as well as the white people, that he's, rumor has it that he's really pro-black and wants to help the black community. So they're very um, frustrated already. And he hasn't even done anything yet, by the way. Um, but they're frustrated and they're very concerned about that. I just thought that's something to monitor and be mindful of as going into the new year, um, because I'm pretty sure he's going to have he's going to he has a hell of a job in front of him. Um, and I personally, I don't see how that's possible for um, an individual in that position, as far as being a mayor of this city, to be pro-black. I, I don't think that's even going to be allowed uh, under the system of white supremacy. Uh, but that's just something to monitor. With that said, I'll, I'll, by, by the way, one more thing, Gus. Did, did Dr. Kevorkian ever speak about the, um, 
the original writer of the Matrix, the that that won the copyright battle against the Wolowski brothers, I believe, Sophia Stewart. Uh, Sophia Stewart has been a guest on the cows, uh, 2010, but no, I do not recall uh, Dr. Kevorkian talking about her uh, and or someone asking him about asking him about her specifically. Uh, I guess folks can do so. I have heard that rumor. Even uh, Pamela Evans Harris, the late, uh, had mentioned that. I think she had a blog post about that, and I am not certain that that is true, uh, especially because they still reference the Wachowskis. Uh, anti- speaking mm. of anti-sex, they are still referenced uh, prominently as the creators. There's no mention of a lawsuit or any of that, which I think would have, at least with all the other outlets and non-white people, would have, you know, they would have a reference, and I've not seen that. Like, bam, court document, settlement, boom, all of that. I've not, and even Miss Stewart. Like, I think I would have. She's been on the cows. Like, I think she would have. Uh, man, it would have been all kinds of stuff. Like, man, when my settlement got this, boom, 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 and all that. So, I've not seen where that is accurate. But no, I've not heard where Doctor Kaborkin has addressed that. Uh, folks can, as soon as I get everything posted up and have the date and everything, I'll let folks know. So, if they want to ask or write the question up and I'll ask uh, to see if he knows about Sophia Stewart. Great. Great. Much obliged. Uh, Folks who dialed in, hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Book Club on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian was giving away books. Like, that's how I got mine. Like, I think a number of uh, listeners got a free copy of uh, Color Monitors. Uh, so if they want to check it out in advance to see what he says about because he talks about the Matrix. Uh, Sophia Stewart, I think, is connected to, or at least says she's connected to Terminator as well. He talks about rights, about that book as well, uh, what it means for racism, white supremacy, even why in the film uh, John Connor is wearing a public enemy T-shirt. Uh, fits right in line with his theory about all these films. But looking forward to have Dr. Kevorkian back on the program. Long, long time guest uh, with the cows. That said, uh, holiday weekend notwithstanding, sobriety would be best. Protect that brain computer. Get off to good habits. New Year, so-called. Uh, in addition to being sober, uh, if you're out and about, not a good time to be in verbal confrontations with strangers. Uh, you see someone being rowdy doing a Patricia Cornwall about masks or anything else. You do not want to be confronting them. Space, distance, maybe even evacuate the area. You have no idea if they're armed, ready for violence. They came maybe looking to mistreat a black person might have an entire armed entourage at the ready. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. This is not a time uh, to be going out in public and some sort of surprise confrontation and, oh, wow, didn't know they were going to have an assault rifle. Kyle Rittenhouse. In addition to being sober, If you're in a vehicle, you are buckled. You are not on the cell phone, uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, and we need all our attention. That said, creator, 
we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>